welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm joined in the studio by H. Gilbert Welch, and we're going to be talking about all things screening. In the course of his visit out here in Oregon, Dr. Welsh made the point that the central theme that united all of his work was that novel ways to expand diagnosis, be it blood tests that can find disease that you otherwise could not find, imaging that can find abnormalities where they previously would not be found, these advances in technology do sometimes bring good. They sometimes make people better off. But what they certainly do is bring harm. And we forget that this balance is very delicate and must be considered in all expansions of diagnostic category. And he said that was the central theme that united his work. And he's here on the podcast to expand upon that theme. And first, I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to talk about one, a little bit of an update about multiple myeloma based on a reader question. And two, last week on this podcast, I said you need to go after hard targets, not the soft targets of Bigfoot and acupuncture and cupping. You need to go after things that actually matter, that utilize your expertise, your unique training. And this week, I'm going to go back at it. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about why simply going after hard targets is not enough. You got to go after the right hard targets. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, listener feedback. This was in response to a little bit of a dialogue on whether or not we ought to treat high-risk smoldering myeloma with Revlimid based on the recent ECOG study, which found a delay in the time until myeloma, which I said was tautological, not surprising, to be completely expected. And that trial did not find an improvement in overall survival and has been rendered incapable of giving that verdict because patients have been allowed on the control arm to cross over to the investigational agent or other trials. So the trial is a dud. It's set out to sea with the best of intentions, but there was mutiny aboard the ship, and so it won't give us what we need to know. And as such, I lamented that it was quite sad, and my entire career I will never know the answer to this question, and very likely, with a few more drug dinners, we'll be treating that condition in the near future. But an astute listener writes, Not all PFS is created equal. Regarding your comments on the smoldering myeloma trial, when PFS in metastatic cancer refers to radiographic progression, well, that's one thing. But wouldn't progression from smoldering myeloma to full-on myeloma with symptoms and or end organ damage truly be a clinically relevant endpoint? Thanks. Okay, so it's a good question. You know, are the endpoints that define myeloma clinically relevant endpoints? Well, this is what I wrote back to the listener. Thank you for your question. In my humble opinion, myeloma progression can mean a bunch of things. So I'm going to say six things it could mean. One, 
you could progress from high-risk smoldering to myeloma, and that could present in the form of renal failure requiring dialysis that cannot be reversed even as the myeloma burden is suppressed with drugs. That is bad. Okay, that's clinically relevant and bad. Two, you could present with a broken bone, a painful fracture that might require sort of an orthopedic surgery, and I would say that's also bad. Now, the next four categories, a little bit, a little bit more equivocal. Three, you could present with myeloma with an asymptomatic lytic or blastic lesion on annual x-ray or scan that gets better with therapy and actually regresses on its own, requires really no further focal treatment. And I would say that's not too bad. Four, you could present with anemia that gets better with treatment. And I would say that's also not too bad. Five, you could present with a diminishing GFR. That is true, and renal damage is the end organ damage of myeloma. But as we treat the myeloma, that gets better, and you never require dialysis, and you're able to get all the routine myeloma medications. I said that's not too bad. And then six, you could present with high calcium that gets better with treatment. I would say that could also not be too bad. So of these six things, two are bad, and four are arguably reversible or partly reversible and not as bad. And we do not know in this clinical trial the breakdown among these six. I would speculate and guess that it was probably more of the latter four. But even if most events were one and two, the dialysis and the broken bone, that would occur in a small group of people. You might be sparing one person out of 100, that outcome. And how should you weigh that against the fact that all 100 people are going to be exposed to lenalidomide toxicity? How do you balance one person's need for dialysis with 99 people receiving lenalidomide who would otherwise have presented with reversible complaints of myeloma? How do you balance that? Well, we have a way to balance that. That's appealing to health-related quality of life, longitudinal scores across time, both while on therapy for smoldering myeloma and even beyond through probably the first few lines of myeloma therapy to show that there's not a countervailing detrimental effect on the back end from spending most of your imid eligibility in a precursor state. So you want to balance that. So health-related quality of life is the right way to balance that. So the answer to this question is that yes, not all PFS is created equal. And even within myeloma, the composite primary endpoint of time to myeloma is a composite endpoint where not all the entities have equal weight. You know, there's a classic joke about diabetes trials that they often use a composite primary endpoint. It includes um, uh, blindness from diabetes, uh, renal failure requiring dialysis, and a rise in A1C of about half a percentage point or one percentage point. And one of those three things is not as bad as the other two, and yet is often the driver, the most common event in some of those clinical trials. Similarly, in cardiology, they use a composite primary endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes, hospitalization for heart failure, myocardial infarction or stroke, or revascularization. And often then, revascularization, again, the softest endpoint, the one subject to clinical decision-making and subject to sort of ascertainment bias is often the one driving the endpoint. And similarly here, time to myeloma is a collection of endpoints, some of which are really important in and of themselves and some of which are not. And we don't have a sense in this trial which endpoints there are. And also, we don't know how to weigh that against the fact that many, 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 many people who wouldn't have presented with that condition are taking a drug for years um, when they otherwise would be free of treatment. And that drug had a formidable rate of discontinuation, which speaks to the fact that it's not a walk in the park. Well, I thank the listener for this astute question, and I encourage more questions like this on Plenary Session. So thank you, sir.
Next up, the hard targets. You know, on the last episode of this podcast, I went hard against those skeptics. You know, those people who've spent decades of their life earning an MD, a PhD, residency in surgery, and subspecialties training in trauma surgery so that they have the ammunition, the technical skills to be able to say homeopathy has no credible evidence. Okay, yeah, so they have a lot of skills, and the best thing they can topple with those skill set is something that you don't need much training and education at all to know it has no plausible preclinical science and no credible studies of efficacy. Bravo to those skeptics for taking on those soft, soft targets. Those targets that get you the retweets, but they don't help anybody. And it really is a waste of your talents or skill. And if that's what you wanted to crusade against, why'd you go to medical school? You could have really read one book in one afternoon and reached most of those conclusions. That's about all it takes. All right. So this week, I want to talk about the hard targets because I think it's important to point out that simply because you go after hard targets doesn't mean you're going after the right hard targets, doesn't mean you're being effective about it. So here are some of my thoughts on hard targets. One, criticize articles published in journals people read. It may sound bizarre to say, but there are many, 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 many journals. There's over 100,000 journals in the journal ecosystem. There are more journals than stars in the night sky. No, I don't know if that's true, but there are a lot of journals and they keep popping up and they keep emailing me, asking me for my honorable and wise contribution. So I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm not going to send it to a journal that no one reads. And I want to talk about reading. Um, I'm somebody who likes to read a few journals. I like to read journals. I go out of my way to read journals. And even I am lucky to read one or two journal articles a week. And I seek that out. I build time into my life to do that. I'm lucky to read one or two articles a week. They will be more likely to come from these journals. One, New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, the BMJ, Annals of Internal Medicine, JAMA Internal Medicine, the JCO, Lancet Oncology, JAMA Oncology, European Journal of Cancer. These are journals that I read more. Oh, of course, Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. Uh, that's a fantastic journal. Um, and that's the place I go when I want a good review article. And eLife and Nature and Science, rarely when it's on a topic that interests me. Um, but these are the journals that I read. These are journals that people read. Not a lot of people, that's the truth. I mean, even though the, these are the premier journals, not a lot of people are reading them. A lot of people aren't reading them. And these are the premier, popular, high-impact factor journals. Better or worse, they're the journals people read. Um, there are a lot of journals people don't read. They're not looking at, they're not reading. And I sometimes see tutorials on articles from those journals that no one's reading. And I fear that that too falls victim to the Streisand effect. You're drawing attention to an article that was doing its perfectly good job of being lost to the sands of time. So you didn't need to do that. You need to talk about that article. So I would say you should go after the articles people are reading. Um, with a caveat, you know, maybe it's worthwhile to go after one of those articles if they generate a lot of attention in the news on social media or through citations. So if there's an article in some journal that people don't normally read, but it's disproportionately cited, it's disproportionately discussed in the news, it's disproportionately tweeted on social media, yeah, that's worth talking about. That's worth breaking down in a tutorial, in a podcast, in a blog post, wherever you'd like to. I would say in a letter to the editor, but good luck publishing that with the way these editors are. Um, 
So those are also worth your time. If it's an Ember article, a preprint article that's getting a lot of publicity, those are great to really break apart because they're not been subject to peer review. And I'm not one of these people who believes peer review does much good. I wonder what it does at all. But it does eliminate some maybe gross errors, gross grammatical problems. Um, and it is at least some check or counterbalance on tone and interpretation of studies. Um, but, you know, it's obviously an incredibly fallible thing. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago before it didn't exist at all. I saw some tweet that said it really rose to prominence in the 1970s. Next point. Dissect hard targets like the fugu puffer fish. What do I mean by that? This is that famous fish that can be cut in a way that it is delicious and edible and cut in a way that the poisonous portions remain and it will kill you. And I think it is so easy and common in the appraisal of scientific literature to learn to cut. The sample size is too small. The inclusion criteria is bad. This is wrong. This is wrong. Cut, 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 cut. But just like someone who cuts that fish, you have to cut in the right spots. And if you cut in the wrong spots, you're going to poison the table. And in this case, what are the wrong spots? Well, the sample size is too small. Oh, really? Um, but the orbited trial was powered to detect a 30-second difference in modified Bruce protocol exercise time. You have previously stated the minimally clinically important difference is 45 seconds. It's powered to detect a difference smaller than that. Ergo, is it not overpowered to detect a difference you care about? Oh, but the sample size is small. Wrong. You cut it wrong. You cut it wrong. You know, similarly, inclusion criteria. Oh, Orbita, you only included people with single vessel disease. We don't know what happens to people with multivessel disease. There's an ounce of truth to that, but counterpoint. Why did we include people with single vessel disease? Well, they have angina and exertional anginal symptoms, and they only have one anatomic lesion. Ergo, if we were to stent the one anatomic lesion, the symptoms should get better if the symptoms are, in fact, due to that macroscopic lesion. So it's actually quite parsimonious from a scientific point of view. So again, you cut, but wrong spot. You cut the puffer fish and you're dead. Um, so what I want to say is that when you think about critical appraisal of an article, you really need to step back and say, what is the clinical question that I want answered? What is the ideal study that I would want to see? What are ways in which this study deviates from the ideal? And which of those deviations are meaningful that may skew it towards false inferences of efficacy or non-efficacy? What differences matter? Where should I place the cuts? You have to cut appropriately, and that is a skill. And that is why hard targets are important. That is why you really do take professional risk when you go after hard targets, which you don't take when you go after homeopathy or acupuncture or, you know, whatever foolish tweets I read last week of that ridiculous account, quote tweeting, all sorts of foolishness. Um, you, you take no professional risk there because wherever you cut it, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is stupid. No one's going to push back on you and say, well, it's not stupid, of course, because it is stupid. And you can cut it like a fool and, you know, you're still going to point out that it doesn't make sense. But when you pick a hard target, if you cut it in the wrong spot, you may look foolish. You may be wrong. Somebody may push back on you. So you put yourself on the line. And I think that's why it takes true courage. And I think that's also why it reflects the skill set that you've built up. That's why you ought to use that skill set that you spent 10 years building up um, to do this. Um, going after soft targets would be just as ludicrous as finishing surgical training and then um, going to volunteer in a soup kitchen. Am I saying that it's bad to volunteer in a soup kitchen? No, that's a great thing to do. But why'd you go through 12 years of surgical training to do it? And why'd you go through 12 years of surgical training to say homeopathy is foolish? That's a total waste of your particular unique skill set. And similarly, 
you take that applied to a hard target, you got to cut in the right spots. You really got to make sure that this is something within your domain um, that that actually matters. And I'll just add a little bit of asterisk here. Um, Often reform comes from within a discipline. True reformers, be they religious reformers or scientific reformers, are often people within the profession or field. They are often the most effective reformers, um, and 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 people on the outside are are often not. And that likely is also true in this in this situation as well. Um, four. Conflicts in financial motivations are often worth noting. You know, this is the kind of slippery slope I think we see between uh, novel methods of communication and old-fashioned methods. It was often considered taboo wrong, and journal editors would remove uh, comments that drew attention to the funding source, conflicts of interest, undisclosed conflicts of interest among the authors of the paper that you were critical of. But in the world of blogs and social media, I think that information is germane. I think that often tells a meta story about not only what the errors of the analysis are, but what might have been some intentionality to those errors, that some of them may have been planned and that there may be some perverse incentives why that occurred. Um, and then finally, when you when you dissect a hard target, you got to really um, go through why this is problematic. So those typically tend to be problems with the population study. They're not like the patients in our clinics. Problems with causal inference. They're making causal conclusions, causal language. And even though they say association, 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 the moment they get that call from the New York Times, it's causal, 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 causal. And that would be okay if they really have done causal work and have evidence to suggest some of this work uh, would be replicated by RCT sort of thing, but they often have not. It's often very flimsy association stuff. So you have to point out the problems with causal inference, maybe the potential for reverse causality. Another classic problem is problems with the control arms or post-protocol therapies, problems with the protocol, problems where it deviates from our standard of care or normal practices. And then another meta problem we see in science is the problems with failure to report data, missing information, information germane to the analysis. That was one of my major points of beacon. If somebody gave you the elevator pitch for the beacon trial and you'd say, okay, well, here's a list of 20 things I'd like to know before I can make sense of this clinical study. And then you go look in the manuscript for those 20 things. You're not going to find 18 of those things. So there's problems with failure to report data in that paper. Massive problems. I think these are sort of the things that are germane to hard targets. So... I often ignore hard targets that are doing a perfectly fine job of being lost to the sands of time. I preferentially go after hard targets that have large population relevance that have to do with drug approvals or device approvals that appear in the mainstream medical journals that are in the New York Times, that are in the USA Today, that are tweeted on social media, that have altmetric scores of one grand plus. Those are the hard targets I go after because those are targets where my criticism is likely um, to be read and understood by many people. Two, it's unlikely that my criticism is actually drawing attention to the flawed article. Uh, it had already gotten a lot of attention. And 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 the potential to persuade um, people within my tribe uh, by reason and evidence is much stronger um, than you know when you pick on soft targets. And, and so I think that uh, the lesson of this week's podcast is uh, last week we learned that, you know, it's a waste of your talents and uh, and people like me will not think uh, very highly of you if you devote your life to going after uh, soft targets on the internet with quote tweets um, that uh, were described in last week's podcast. In this week's podcast, I want to double down and say that even when you go after hard targets, you got to do it right. You got to pick the right targets. Be careful you don't amplify things. And Cut it like the puffer fish. Cut it in the right places because it's the accuracy of the cuts that matter. They're life and death. And uh, 
And it truly is an act of courage because your professional reputation is on the line. So on that positive note, we will turn to our interview with Gil Welch. You won't want to miss a minute of this. This is superb. Stay tuned. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ, joined by Dr. H. Gilbert Welch. Dr. Welch is a professor of medicine, now spending his time... Well, that's hard, isn't it? I know, that's it? hard. Well, yeah, I was going to say... I know, it's not an easy way to start. Where is Gil Welch? Go ahead. Yeah, I want to see how you finish the sentence. <laughs> well, Dr. Welch is currently <laughs> dividing his time between between Vermont, where he has a home, Montana, where he has another home, and the Harvard Medical School, where he has a, a role in the surgical department there. Uh, another home. Another home. But not a house. Not a house. Okay. Three homes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Welch, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's on, great to be on here. On plenary session. But let me let me say a little bit more about sure. you. I mean, I, I guess the, the only way to sort of describe you is you're a general internist. You're practicing yes. an internist who worked for many, many years at the White River Junction VA. That's right. You also are a professor of medicine whose scholarly focus has always been on the way in which technological advances might outpace our ability to keep up with them as well as have unintended consequences we really never saw coming. Yeah. And in, in that body of work, I think um, you, know, you, along with a handful of people, have been really instrumental in moving an entire profession from uncritical acceptance to a point in time where I don't think we have it all right, but we can at least start to have an honest discussion about it. And that was a multi-decade effort that required scholarship, communication, lecturing, leadership. And I think when I think of what you've done to date in your career, that's really what I think stands out the most. Well, that's exceptionally kind. I'm not sure it's totally accurate, but um, I very much appreciate it. Uh, There are a lot of uh, docs in my generation that that I think contributed uh, to that. and um, I think there are actually docs in the prior generation that, that, that I looked up to that, that, that sort of helped with these issues. But um, I, I, I will uh, accept the uh, compliment with uh, great uh, <laughs> appreciation, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Wells. And, and I want to just say one other thing. Yeah. Um, you, you, you pointed out uh, that I'm a general internist and worked for the federal government, both in the VA and the Indian Health Service, which uh, was great uh, service, and I, I'm very glad to have done that. I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of research. I've also done a lot of classroom teaching, and, mm-hmm. and ironically, I think that kind of actually helped uh, my research uh, because it was all about uh, explaining things carefully and understanding underlying measures and and stuff. So um, I want to be clear that that was also a very important part of my career. You know, I think so often you hear people thank their students. And obviously, we thank our students for asking us the question that got you thinking about something that in a way you never thought about it, people with fresh eyes. But I also thank them for... um, giving me the opportunity, I think you probably feel the same, to to think about what I wanted to say and say it more clearly. Absolutely. And bounce it off somebody. Right. And see if you can explain something that you you kind of understand, but but you need to now put it into words mm-hmm. or into a figure or, or into some uh, animation that helps understand the processes you're, you're worried about or concerned about. 
when I was a student at University of Chicago, I had uh, some teachers that um, simply gave a bad lecture. <laughs> really? And, yeah, there were there were still though there were still many of them. And uh, for, there's often the same people who like to give lectures, right. even though they're bad. Right. But I had a couple of my classmates say, like, "Look, Doctor So and So, they're just so smart they can't right. explain it." Yeah. Exactly. And I don't yeah. like that. No, I don't either. Yeah. 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 Because no, what, I, yeah. if you really understand your, your, yeah. your subject, you ought to take the time to make sure you can help others. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't, I don't know where to jump in. I mean, we talked a little bit over dinner yesterday. Sure. And so I think it will be helpful for listeners to just get a sense of your background, which sure. is eclectic. And it really did shape, I think, what you do yeah. today. So why don't we take us through? Uh, you're born in Boulder, Colorado. I'm actually born in Alexandria, Virginia, but we'll, I'll throw that away. My I father uh, moved to Colorado uh, with my mother and my two brothers in 1961. I was age uh, six, so I, I, I really started school in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a professor of political science uh, mm-hmm. at the University of Colorado. That's important because he was a teacher and he was very interested in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine the dinner table at, at my home. Mm-hmm. My mother is actually uh, uh, equally, if not more important. Um, she, during World War II, trains as a nurse. She really never practices much as a nurse, but she gets engaged with uh, health care. And when I'm growing up, she's, she's a housewife raising three boys, but she's also very engaged in reproductive rights. Uh, she's part of Planned Parenthood I- in Colorado. And then as I go into high school, she starts getting involved in the hospital. She becomes a hospital trustee. She's on the Certificate of Need Board for Boulder, uh, for, for the state of Colorado, which was the question of how many hospital beds do we need here or there. So she didn't shy away from oh, both controversy or oh, public oh, policy. Oh, absolutely. And she mm-hmm. got right into politics of health care. Mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. she was wondering, you know, we had two hospitals in town did they each need a new brand new ct scanner mm-hmm. and this is the kind of thing we were talking about at the at the dinner table so i i had a um, a sense of some of the politics of medicine um early on mm-hmm. and um also the sense that that that, that there's always new technology and things to buy and i remember laminar flow rooms i learned about laminar flow rooms mm-hmm. for the first time and at the high school dinner table because they were huge expenses for the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so th- that's the kind of uh, 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 upbringing I had, uh, it, that plus an awful lot of fun of being outdoors in a wonderful town, which Boulder was. Um, and I, 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 I also had a couple of very good high school uh, teachers, one in biology, um, who, uh, you know, I began to say, oh, I, I think I want to be a doctor, you know. Um, so I, I, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a doctor, but also knowing I wanted to be a teacher. So my, my goal was kind of to be on a medical school faculty. So you knew that in early age? I knew that, yeah. The time I was applying to medical school, my vision was to be on a medical school faculty. And what would you, but you didn't know what you wanted to teach. You knew you just wanted to teach something. I just wanted to teach, yeah. yeah. I, I had, uh, and, and so right out of college, I got accepted to medical school, as I told you last night, but I deferred. I taught high school mathematics mm-hmm. uh, at the Brooks School in North Andover, Mass. And that was a great year for me. All of a sudden, <laughs> I learned math a lot better and got more attentive to, 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 to very basic math. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that 
in the long run uh, became a very important influence and and i go through medical school take another year off work in radio as i mentioned for a year mm-hmm. i do a rotating internship in johnstown pennsylvania which was excellent training i did a little surgery a little ob a little you know i got a real real varied thing and then i went into the u.s public health service and um, worked in bethel alaska for two years and then I came down to the University of Utah and uh, did my internal medicine there. And then I wanted to, uh, I saw, heard about the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a, a, really a, a huge gift in that it you know, gave you two years of postgraduate training, um, really in the mechanics of doing, quote, non-biologic uh, research in, in healthcare. And uh, I had a great couple years in uh, in Seattle, and uh, that's about the time I realized that if you're going to be on a you want to be on a medical school faculty, um, you really needed to do research. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really the first time I said, okay, well, I'm going to have to learn to do research because I want to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's really it was really teaching that was driving me to do this. And then I realized to be successful as a medical school faculty member, you had to do research and um so a teacher a radio dj yeah and and somebody who wanted to 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 play a role in the lives of medical students that's how you set out that's really how i set out yeah that's right and and as i mentioned last night um you know while i was in seattle Mm -hmm. um interesting things were happening right here in Oregon. That's right. Um, and this was the uh, uh, decision by the Oregon Medicaid program not to cover uh, transplantation. And I read about that in the, um, in the Seattle PI, and I said, that's interesting. And by the way, it's not that far away. Maybe I should go down to Salem and talk to the doc there that's, uh, that's running this train. And that's, of course, John Kitzhaber. He's a Senate president at the mm-hmm. time had the additional benefit it gave me excuse to take a nice train ride from uh on that amtrak cascade (laughs) rail yeah it was before it was called the cascades i think but Uh anyway yeah i came down from king station into salem and uh, walked to the capitol and um sat down with john kitzhaber and that was very interesting and led to uh really my first uh um, article in the new england uh, journal which was just a sounding board uh but it was about dealing with limited resources and and, and then I began to get excited, like, well, these are really interesting issues, and actually they're really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, you know, that's, that's how it kind of got going. Let me, and let me just unpack it a little yeah, bit for yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah, which, just by adding uh, uh, that, um, you know, this was the early 1990s, and John Kitzhaber used to be a professor here at OHSU. He ran yeah. the Center for Evidence-Based Policy, and he was an emergency medicine doc and uh, a very charismatic individual. He still is to this day. He ended up being governor of our state for, I think, about 12 years, four-term governor. Yeah. And uh, ultimately uh, had to step down in the wake of, uh, you know, something I don't want to get into on this right. podcast. But um, he, he was an instrumental figure in this state. And yes. one of the things I think he's most known for um, was the Oregon experiment around Medicaid, uh, the so-called prioritized list. Yeah. Unlike a lot of states where Medicaid rations and the way they ration is by setting the cutoff for Medicaid eligibility very, very low, and that's how they ration healthcare. And then if you qualify, you can get all the healthcare you need, both the good stuff and the marginal unproven stuff. Oregon always tried to raise the cutoff as high as possible, cover as many people as possible, but prioritize things that really make a benefit and really make a big dent in the health of patients, really provide a value. And 
Governor Kitzhaber was instrumental in that even when he was state senate president. He saw that, I think, when many of us didn't. He saw that you know, all societies ration. It's just how we choose to ration. Do you ration in a rational way or do you ration based on someone's ability to even get access to the system? Yeah, and, and I, I think his language at the time, if I remember correctly, was to sort of to prioritize beneficiaries mm-hmm. over benefits. Mm-hmm. Because the, the basic uh, uh, standard for other states at the time in the face of budgetary pressure was to cut beneficiaries. Right, lower that bar. Yeah. And and you know when we talk about lower the bar, I mean we're talking about um uh, but we're talking about federal poverty line. Yeah. We're talking about a very, very low bar. The right. people who are being cut off Medicaid, they are not rich people. Right. No. They're people who would benefit from sort of a social service. So I think, I mean, I share his philosophy, and obviously we probably share it even more because we share the philosophy that in this day and age, in this nation, we need right. universal coverage. And uh, Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, so but this was a very seminal moment, I think, in the history of Oregon was this very controversial case of about this young boy right. who was not getting a transplant in Seattle. And you, you made an excellent point over dinner yesterday, which is people didn't talk so much about the fact that Seattle wouldn't do it without getting paid. <laughs> no, was, Nothing that, stopped them from doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right. You, can, you, can't, you can't have this moral outrage when, when, you, when you're fully able to do the procedure. You're just quibbling about who's paying the bill. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. I, I, we see that today yeah, over and over absolutely. again. Absolutely. Where you see people getting outraged. They're insured and cover some very right. costly marginal right. drug, but they're not critical of the pharmaceutical company for charging $400,000 right. per right. year of therapy. Right. Right. But anyway, this was a moment in your life that I think was seminal. It led to your first sounding board article, yeah. which you downplay, but is a real honor. And, uh, it I th- was. and I think that there are very few people um, who've written a sounding board. They publish fewer sounding boards, of course, than original articles. Right. And Arnie Buzz-Relman called you back in the oh day. Oh, my God. What a nerve-wracking call that was. Yeah. Um, yeah so I'm, I'm a fellow. You know, it's my first article. I younger members of the audience will have to realize, you know, you sent it in the mail and, you know, maybe you'd hear something two months later. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't hear anything. I got a phone call and I was told it was the editor of the New England Journal. I'm going, you're kidding. <laughs> and, and so, of course, I'll talk to him. And, and I, I was very nervous. But the, Dr. Relman went through a couple of lines that he, he said, you know, I think this is a pretty good paper, but I think it could be better, and I want to talk to you about a couple of sentences. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. Uh, but anyway, that was a, it, it was really a wonderful, um, and, and I, that's never happened since. I, I've never had a editor call me to talk about a few specific sentences in a paper. I might have seen an email saying that, you know, mm-hmm. we question this, but I've never had anyone call me. So that was that was interesting. Yeah. I think it's a testament to the type of person he was yeah. um, and yeah. uh, and what he sought to accomplish during his tenure at the journal. Um, so fast forward a few years and sure. you end up going to Dartmouth I University. Do. Yeah, and in fact, I was advised by um, one of my uh, mentors in Seattle that it would probably be better not to stay in Seattle. <laughs> um, and I think there's actually some truth to this, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that it's good to get beyond where you're trained. Um, and, and then he, he, he said there was a really interesting um, opportunity at Dartmouth. And, and um, even though I had gone to school at Harvard, um, I'd never been to Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, a- anyway, so I said, Dartmouth, wow, where's, you know. So, but look, you um, got to look it up on a map. I look it up <laughs> on a map, and I, I go out there, and um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful environment. I knew Jack Wenberg was there, mm-hmm. and, and Jack Wenberg is sort of, if you will, the father of the 
observations about geographic variation. Mm-hmm. The Dartmouth Health care, Atlas. Dartmouth Health Atlas. Mm-hmm. Jack was a, a, I could immediately see uh, that he was a great guy. Um, not just a, a, a good scientist, he was a, a good person. Um, and and I, I always credit Jack with, um, you know, at, at the time I had been really focused all on the cost side. Yeah. And, you know, how much does it cost? Yeah. Um, and and uh, Jack w- was trying to redirect me a little bit. And he said, Gil, the, the, the most important question isn't how much it costs. The, the more important question is, does it really help people? Yeah. And um, that's a really important point. I mean, yeah. the first level question, uh, you know, before we're doing cost effectiveness analysis where people assume the effectiveness exists or something, the r- real question is, is, is it, it effective? effective? Yeah. And, and let's talk about how we measure that and, and, and whether it's clear or whether it's, you know. So th- I, I, that, was, that was very important. Um, and so I came um, and uh, was working at the VA and working with uh, my colleague Elliot Fisher. And I was uh, being advised by uh, a VA doc who uh, was an important political mentor, John Wasson. And uh, jo- John told me one day, he said, you know, there's a new radiologist up here that he's asking all sorts of questions. I'm not sure I understand exactly what he's saying, but I think you ought to go listen to him. And, of course, that was Bill Black, mm-hmm. who's, who's actually turned out to be um, probably had as much influence on my career as anybody mm-hmm. because he was he was really going through that transition from chest x-rays to chest CTs. Mm-hmm. It took us a while to get chest CTs because mm-hmm. we needed to image them fast enough why someone held their breath, mm-hmm. you know. So it, so we had head CTs long before we had chest CTs. And mm-hmm. when chest CTs started coming out, you know, Bill was just so frustrated, first how long they took to read, mm-hmm. and then how much stuff was there that wasn't on the chest x-ray. You know, there's just all this extra abnormality. More, um, more people become patients when yeah, you get more ex- sensitive exactly. imaging. Exactly. You, you start seeing every little structure and potential abnormality or lesion that you you can imagine so he 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 was saying you know this is a problem with this as our technology gets more has higher resolution a better ability to sort of detect uh, small perturbations um, you'll always find more stuff Um, and and of course I get that right off but 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 then he pointed out the second thing that I I thought was like oh yeah I get that is now the typical patient identified with an abnormality has a milder abnormality and thus will do better and and so you have this very misleading combination you look harder you find more and you have a sense there's more disease out there and the typical patient does better which seems to suggest that the whole thing's really helping people right and and these are these tremendous biases that that make early detection very counterintuitive uh to doctors and patients and 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 Mm -hmm. i i said wow that's just a very general problem that goes well beyond uh the question of imaging it goes to lab tests it goes to troponins so on and so forth um this is a fundamental issue in medicine um and and the two issues that are intertwined here which is what what you're getting at is more sensitive 
diagnostic testing. Yeah, I, can I just interrupt? Yeah, no, no, that, that, that word sensitive is, is, a, is, misleading is, word. is a really misleading word because it goes back to this binary two-by-two right, two table right. where people either have disease or they don't, and sensitivity is about people with disease and right. what proportion of them do you find. So it is. I have to share with you a little uncertainty about what the right word right, is, but right. I, I try to use the word resolution or it, it, it's something about the ability... Deeper, uh, 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 a finer resolution. Yeah, the, yeah. the, yeah, the ability to notice perturbations from normal. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Something like that. From what, I know, what a mouthful. Right, right. <laughs> but what, what you perceive as normal, because this yeah. is probably normal. Right, of okay, course. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, and, and there are two issues here. One is the lead time, that yeah. some of these are going to get worse and be yeah. detected later, but you right. get the illusion that you're helping someone because there's right. more time from when you right. knew about it to right. when something bad happened. Right. But the second issue you're getting at is an asymptomatic reservoir. Yeah. That if you sliced and diced our bodies in infinitely many ways, there are lots of parts that aren't working the way the textbook says it should be working, but many of those are not going to do anything in the rest or, of our natural or, or, life. Or, or it's not so much they're not working. They may be working fine, but th their anatomy looks a little different right. than the so-called normal anatomy. Right, right, yeah, right, I, right. I think that's the, uh, the, the, the They the visually thing. look different. Yeah. They secrete a protein in yeah. a different level. Yeah. They're doing yeah. something different yeah. than what we perceive as and normal. And of course, the very nature of the human body is, of course, we have variability both within ourselves and across uh, individuals. And... Uh, there's a lot of abnormality. Um, and we're beginning to unearth more and more of it, and, and we presume uh, that, that we know exactly what it means. But, but, but to be fair, I think we've come a long way over the last uh, 20 years, you know, that, 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 that more and more doctors do recognize that often the right thing to do for these small abnormalities is absolutely nothing. Um, Sometimes that's hard, mm -hmm. uh, but um, I, I think we're seeing that in, in more and more clinical care. But you will define this, this is the central salvo of your, this is the, you'll define this, this is the central thesis of your body of work, is that uh, technology, technological advancements are finding things that hitherto were unfound. Yeah. And you may have the illusion that that's progress. Right. And some of it may be progress. Yep. But some of it may cut the other way. Right. And, 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 but, but it always looks like progress. It always That's looks like progress. Yeah. It always looks like progress, even though it may be hiding harm. Yeah. Right. And, and you came to this realization, I mean, at a time where I just don't think people were talking about it that much back then. I mean, it must have seemed a bit of a heretical thought. Well, I, um, I don't know if it seemed heretical, but I, I do know I got a fair amount of pushback. Right? Yeah, I, you did. And, 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 um, and I, I always felt, and I still feel, it's really important for people like you and me to always step back when we're with patients and to acknowledge that medical care can do an awful lot of good. Right, I know. It, it can do an awful lot of good. It's particularly good for people who are acutely ill, Ill. or injured. Right. Um, who feel bad. Who feel bad, yeah. yeah. That, you know, we can't cure everything, but we can make most people feel a little better right. if we focus on making them feel better. So, so medical care can do a lot of good. But it, it's really when we start messing around with things that aren't causing problems, when we, we, we get bef ahead of symptoms, where all of a sudden we can create more problems uh, than we solve. And, and yet, you know, we have... And this, I think, we did as a profession. And by the way, I think the public health community bought into this and made it even worse. 
with, with, with this idea that earlier is always better. It's mm-hmm. always better to find disease earlier, whether you stumble on onto it or whether you're purposely looking for it, you want to have your disease found earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, no one's really been as clear about the downsides of that process and the downsides of that process is it's a recipe for making the entire population sick mm-hmm. by definition and by definition so mm-hmm. y- you know the, the, these questions and it's not simply about the technology that changes it's about our frequency with how much we deploy it you mm-hmm. know how many people we deploy it on how frequently we deploy it on all those things how quickly we react to abnormality all those things sort of capture the intensity of the diagnostic effort Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and as if we get more diagnostically intense we find a whole lot more patients and we tend to do more to more people do you feel that this stems from two fundamental human thoughts one an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and two that the body is like my automobile. If you go under the hood and you find a little something that looks like it's gonna break off, it's much better to fix that right Right. away than let it break. Yeah, I I, I think, uh, of course, the ounce of prevention and a pound of cure always comes up. By the way, it's really important to remember that Benjamin Franklin was talking about fire there. (laughs) Right. Uh, He was talking about moving coals when you were warming your house Mm -hmm. and, and, and not to let you know, lit coals get in the, the cracks of your wood floors. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty damn good advice. Right. Okay. Right. But I want to be clear about that. Right. Uh, but this, you know, resonates with people. And so they, they think that's, uh, that, that's, a that's an argument. Yeah. yeah, that's a panacea. But you've got to remember that, that of course, uh, early detection really isn't about prevention. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's that's about right. early detection. Right. That's a little bit different. And, and so people say, oh, are you down on prevention? No, 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 no. Could we be clear about what, what, what's under this guise of preventive medicine? Well, there's two very different things. There's early detection. That's what a test might tell you. And then there's health promotion, and that's what your grandmother might tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, eat your fruits and vegetables, uh, go play outside, mm-hmm. uh, and by all means, don't start smoking. You right, know, those sensible kind of advice. Those are huge. Health promotion efforts are really important preventive there's, efforts. There's a third category, though, which is chemo prevention. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right, okay. Right, but right, but, 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 right, but th- th- this is something that can happen outside the medical center. Right, I see. You probably okay. should. Um, but the early detection... Yeah became um, really a way for medical care to operationalize the interest in prevention. By the way, Richard Nixon was was huge on preventive care when mm-hmm. he's writing the NCI, you know, preventive care, we need to, we, we need to encourage, that's why he's starting to get involved with health maintenance organizations, with the idea that the system would help prevent disease. Mm-hmm. The way we operationalize that in medicine was to look for disease early, you know, it was just to, to scan and test and look for disease early. And, and so it became a very, you know, um, popular, if you will. You know, it was, it sort of, it, it looked like the system was responding to the, the needs of the public and mm-hmm. now it becomes performance measures and, and, and all this. So this, this is evidence of, of us paying attention to, uh, to prevention by ordering a lot of tests. Right. <laughs> and finding, finding, finding a lot disease. of stuff. Right. And then you get these craziness and i'm sure we'll talk about korea but but you know you you carry this to its logical extreme and all of a sudden everyone becomes sick and 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 the poster child for that problem is is south korea and the thyroid cancer and 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 and, and docs just starting routinely to have ultrasounds in their office and looking for thyroid nodules and biopsying them 
what happened? You had a 15-fold increase in thyroid cancer incidence. 15-fold. Mm-hmm. That's more than lung cancer went from 1900 to its peak in mm-hmm. in, in 1970. It's in a new carcinogen, Dr. It's Welch. A, you know, it's like unbelievable. And, 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 and of course, all, almost all those thyroids came out. Total thyroidectomy, need lifelong thyroid replacement. And now you got all these survivors, mm-hmm. people who feel they owe their life to the test. Mm-hmm. And that becomes part of the media narrative. Mm-hmm. That, look, we, we have a lot more thyroid cancer than previously realized, and your best hope is to get screened and be mm-hmm. found early. And then you have all these people who understandably attribute their being alive to the test. Well, that's a really hard narrative to break. Narrative to break. Yeah, and let me just uh, articulate the sort of million dollar figure in this paper of yours, which was a New England Journal of Medicine, I believe, perspective on the thyroid cancer epidemic. On one, you have two lines in this figure, and it's very simple. One shows what happens to the incidence of thyroid cancer over time in Korea, a nation that exuberantly pursued ultrasound diagnosis. And it's just, as you say, 15-fold increase, exponential growth curve, yeah, yeah. like you'd see in biology class. Yeah. And you have a second line, which is what's the mortality per 100,000 people in the population over time, and it is just a flat line like a desert, yeah. suggesting that either there is a magical new carcinogen increasing the, the incidence 15-fold that's perfectly compensated by a therapeutic strategy. Each keeps, year. Each year. Each, each year, year. That keeps death the same. By, by <laughs> doctors who have no ability to know what the incidence rate actually is because right. it takes about two years to but, know what it is. But yet they're compensating yet, in perfect lockstep. perfect counterbalancing. Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. Or... Is it likely? No. no. Yeah. Or yeah. it is a rampant overdiagnosis. Yeah. And that's what it is. That that Yeah, exactly. To me, you know, that's not an epidemic of disease. When you see a, a, a skyrocketing incidence of disease and a flat mortality, that's not an epidemic of disease. That's an epidemic of diagnosis. And and, and it's important. Yeah. That's the, you know, it's not just, oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's a, it's important because that means tens of thousands of people are losing a thyroid gland for nothing. Maybe a fraction of them have recurrent laryngeal no- nerve palsies. A yep, fraction some. of them have post-op complications. A fraction of them yeah. have a prolonged hospital stay. And they have hypoparathyroidism. And yeah. almost all of them have lifelong thyroid cancer. Right. The thyroid replacement requirements. And so what you're saying is that we cannot forget that many, many people here are being directly harmed through an unnecessary right. surgery. That's right. And, and, me- and, and, the, and the hardest thing yeah. to acknowledge but i need to totally acknowledge this we're never sure exactly which people they are ah yes that's the and that's the crux so let's that's, talk about mammography yeah, sure okay so so don't know anything about it <laughs> you wish you didn't well that's what they say yeah uh of course because you're <laughs> not the general intern you're not going, a, oh you're, you're yeah. not an expert i'm not an expert you're not an expert no you know, they, i'm not an expert in anything can i tell you they always say that um I'm not an expert either. What do I know about these can I'm an oncologist. I'm a general oncologist. Uh, I'm not an expert. I was like, who is the expert? Yeah. Like the only expert is the the surgeon on the front lines doing the operation. And then to which I said, which people don't like my joke, which is, look, if I want to know what movies to produce, uh, I don't ask the guy tearing tickets in the front of the line. I ask somebody who thinks about po- think about movie theater business. And then I think about population dynamics. Okay. Right, right. That's my that's my mean spirited joke. Um, but 
this is a very pervasive narrative, the idea that my life was saved. And mm-hmm. you tackled that question right. directly in breast cancer right. in a JAM internal medicine piece where you said, what is the probability that mm-hmm. if a woman has a diagnosis of breast cancer made right. by screening, right. what was the chance if she goes through with all the downstream right. treatments that her life was in fact saved? Right. And the answer, I believe, in your paper was 13%, was it? Yeah, well, the answer, of course, depends on the range of what what benefit you uh, ascribe to mammography. Okay. And if you ascribe as much as a 30% mortality reduction, it might be as high as 20%, Mm -hmm. one in five. But that is, uh, and and then, of course, and I think the real effect of mammography is much more around five or 10%, in which case the chance that her life was saved is more like 5%. Something and and like let's that. walk through some of the, the sort of philosophical calculations that go into this. Yeah. One, the mammogram had to have found your cancer, um, uh, and and you wouldn't have found it later and still had your life saved. Right. Right. So that's, that's one right. of the prerequisites. Right. That's right. The next prerequisite, it, the mammogram had to have found your cancer, and it didn't metastasize later in right. a way that it probably didn't save your right. life. Right. 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 So you have to be this person who the mammogram found your cancer, and it wouldn't have otherwise been found unless it were metastatic. You're right. that person. Right. And and based on sort of just simple arithmetic. Yeah, it was just an Excel spreadsheet. Simple yeah. arithmetic, that's just not many people. Right, it's just not many people. And, and yet, of course, every woman who has cancer way. tends to feel that the mammogram saved her life. So why and the is other our, yeah. possibilities, you just yeah, yeah. sort of say it in a, a yeah. slightly different yeah. way, is um, that, and, and this happens, it doesn't happen often, but it's sad when it does, is, is she's going to die anyway. Right, the, the, exactly that right. That, yeah, the, 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 then it was going to become worst. metastatic anyway. That, and she, 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 whether she, the mammography found or didn't, she's dying. Another possibility is treatment would have been just as well. Right, had she found it when she, she felt found something. It when she felt it, yeah. and then the third possibility is, of course, the the most uncomfortable one from the system's perspective is she's being diagnosed totally needlessly. That this is this is a cancer that's never going to bother her, or it's actually in fact going to disappear. And these, uh, if I may, um, you, you know, have been described as the birds, rabbits, and turtles. And the, I was about the, to ask you the yeah, rabbit. Okay, the, the, so the, let's use the analogy. Yeah. yeah so this yeah. is the th- this is a way to describe the heterogeneity of cancer. Uh, I want to be clear; it's not my idea. This is something that's been around in medicine for years. I think it's probably attributable to George Crile, who was a cancer surgeon in the Cleveland Clinic in the fifties. But we've got three animals in the barnyard, the birds, the rabbits, and the turtles. And the goal of early detection is to try to catch them early, to fence them in. And, you know, your listeners can imagine the problem with fencing in a bird. You you can't do it. It's flown away. It's already flown away. And these represent the fastest growing cancers, the most aggressive cancers. The cancers that have typically spread microscopically by the time they're detectable. Screening isn't going to help with the birds. The question with the birds is, can you treat them? Now, the rabbits are hopping around. You can catch them if you build enough fences. These are the more slowly growing cancers where screening may, may um, help by finding them early. Now, in order to really help by finding them early, for treatment earlier must be better than treatment later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, they're the turtles. And uh, you don't need any fences because they're not going anywhere anyway. And these are the abnormalities that meet the pathologic definition of cancer, but are either growing so slowly that patients die of other causes before they ever um, produce symptoms, 
or they're not growing at all, or they're actually going to regress. Mm-hmm. And there's increasing evidence that small, some small cancers come and go. Mm-hmm. So the unfortunate reality is screening's really good at finding turtles, but doctors are not good at distinguishing turtles from rabbits, so thereby we tend to treat everybody, um, creating the major harm of the whole process over diagnosis and over treatment. The way to know for sure that a cancer screening test improves outcomes that people care about at with harms that people are willing to accept is, of course, conducting a well-done randomized control trial in a population, following huge them. Yeah. Huge effort. Huge, heroic effort. Yeah. And yet, when we don't do such a trial before implementing a practice, we are unleashing the largest public health and efforts at hundreds of billions of dollars of cost yeah. uh, that are entirely uncertain endeavors. Yeah. Um, and when you started your career, you were in the thick of it. Mammography took off before you started. Yeah. And PSA screening took off just as you just were starting. As, just up. as I was starting. Just as yeah. you were starting. And the proponents of these screening tests did not demand or ask or request these, mm. these randomized trials. Um, in the case of PSA, at least, the real definitive studies were not done until a decade later. Until the horse was out of the barn. Literally. Yeah. The barnyard analogy, come back. <laughs> um, I guess one question I have for you is, we are now on the cusp of the new generation of screening, mm. a single blood-based test yeah, that, oh God. that's going yeah. to find the cancers that, that we wish right. we could find, right. pancreas cancer, right. GE junction cancer, right. esophagus, and it's going to be a single blood-based test. Mm. Um, these proponents of this test want, more than anything, not to have to do the randomized trials at the outset. They right. want the same entry. Right. Is that a good idea? No, of course not. Um, we need trials, and, and I think the, the ethical imperative is highest uh, when we're uh, dealing with asymptomatic pos- populations. Because mm-hmm. th- th- this is the case, you know, you, you can argue for doing things to people who are experiencing symptoms that you're just trying something. You know, you're trying to alleviate uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. But, but when, you, when you're dealing with asymptomatic populations, we're, we're actually inviting them in for care. We're mm-hmm. inviting them in for a test. We're or cajoling. We're cajoling and, them. Yeah. And, and, and then we, we've got to know what the full effects of that right. is and, and, and whether it's really helping people. Mm-hmm. We've got to acknowledge, though, these trials are heroic efforts yeah. because mm-hmm. they're they're looking for rare diseases. They typically require tens of thousands of patients um, followed over 10, 15 years. So, so they're really big efforts. So we're going to have to pick and choose where we really do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have to acknowledge that most of these tests are not just one thing. You, you know, it's all about what level or, or of abnormality we respond to. So in the it's, case it's of a process. PSA, you're testing a, pro- a process. Yeah. You're testing a, a, a machine with all sorts of dials that can yeah. be set. At what yeah. age do yeah. you start? What age do you stop? How frequently do you do it? At what level do you react right. to? And we're never going to be able to test all those dials. That's true. But at the so so we we're, we have to have a certain acknowledgement of the limits of our knowledge. Right. And, but, but to un- me, under one thing, some circumstances, you have to prove efficacy. Yeah, first you have to show it works. 
works in Under somebody some in right. some way. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You got to you got to show that, but we're never going to be able to test everything right. And I think one of the things that that though that that, that I think patients and the general public should understand is whenever we have to involve a trial, we have to involve 15,000 patients or 50,000 patients and we have to follow them for 10 years the effect size that's giving you a hint yeah yeah whatever we're doing doesn't make much difference right and that's yeah. what people don't discuss <laughs> people don't talk about yeah, that yeah. Which if you is, see a big trial you say well well man that's not going to be a big effect yeah for, just yeah. for historical context yeah. the va you know the va back in the 60s you know, showed the value of treating really high blood pressure right. in less than 200 men in less than two years. With all-cause mortality. Yeah. Right. And I think what you're getting at is that, you know, sometimes you argue and people say, look, we can't do that trial. The power right. calculation puts the sample size right. at, you know, right. whatever. Right. And then what I want to say is, then what's the effect size? Yeah, right, right, right. It's exactly. A, it's a marginal effect size. Yeah. We can't do that trial, then probably we shouldn't do the test. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the other thing it makes me think about is um, what are the opportunity costs that we're, this is a seductive idea, this idea that we're going to find a screening test that will find cancer before yeah. it spreads. It's a seductive idea. Right. And it's a costly idea that we've invested hundreds right. of billions of dollars into. Right. Um, and it has a real opportunity cost, which is we actually don't do a great job of controlling blood pressure, right. which right. is something well within right. our grasp. Right. We don't do a good job of actually talking to people in general internal medicine visits and finding out what concerns them. And we, we don't do a good job of uh, helping people negotiate death. We don't do a good job of that. We, di we didn't see the opioid epidemic coming. Yeah. We're not doing a good job on so many fronts because right. we're devoting so much of our mental energy right. to screening, screening, screening. Right, and, 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 and it's, um, it, it's a combination of, of true belief, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, oh, it'd be just great if we could find this early and this would be a huge difference and it's always better to find things early but we have to acknowledge it's also about money mm -hmm. i mean there's there's no better product to have than one that everybody in the country ought to do right every everybody making a test wants it to be for the general population that's that's a big market that's what i've always wondered is you know screening tests were never pursued in the highest risk people first the yeah. way we pursued statin therapy yeah you know we did statin therapy trials and people post mi with right. high cholesterol then right. we went broader right. but screening was always one size fits all right. and we can't forget the sheer amount of downstream revenue right. entire surgical fields right. robotic right. surgery propelled living off the back of screening that, that that's absolutely right and, and otis brawley i i thought uh, mm -hmm. made a wonderful comment uh, a couple of decades ago describing his time at the uh, Emory Cancer Center mm -hmm. um, when his his money guys mm -hmm. that's what he called them, mm -hmm. my money men uh, came up and uh, uh, told me that uh, free PSA screening would be a good business decision uh, for the cancer center because they knew if they screened a thousand men at the North Lake uh, Mall this uh, weekend right. that they would more than make up the cost of that in subsequent biopsies you know and mm -hmm. it's just like that that just shows you the cynicism the cyn of it yeah well yeah it's just, it's just like the the you you have sort of this powerful combination we're going to do good plus we're going to do well for ourselves mm -hmm. you know you get you get that one two punch i call it the it's the methamphetamine of being a doctor <laughs> that's right you feel you've done something good yeah, and you got a little monetary good. stimulus yeah, and that's heroin for us yeah, that's an that, addictive that is, substance that is yeah. heroin yeah yeah you're, you're you're out helping the real yeah. people in the in the mall and you're 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 making money I'm at making the same money. time yeah no it's it's a 
It's a real problem, and 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 I think one of the things that concerns me is is I, I fear we're beginning to educate the public that the path to health is through testing, mm. testing or monitoring. You know, um, as opposed to um, you know the path through health is doing what your grandmother would have suggested. You know, and and, and beyond what your grandmother would have suggested, it's a little out of your control. Yeah, that. Bad things happen to good Absolutely. people who Absolutely. do their best. Absolutely. But what we can do is keep your weight down. Yeah. Eat sensibly. Yeah. Don't overeat. Exercise when you can. Mm-hmm. Go for more walks. Sleep more. Yeah. Uh, don't drink too much alcohol. Don't drink too much coffee. Find purpose. Find purpose. Find joy. Find joy. Uh, Absolutely. Those are really important. Be connected with people. Yeah. It's not hard. I mean, it's well, what you're... Well, it can be hard. Uh, well, it's hard to it achieve. Can be hard, but it's but not it's, hard to know not, the goal. It's not yeah. rocket science. Right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. It's not rocket science. And it's and yet it's really important. Um, and uh, so, uh, one thing that's happened over I think over the last uh, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. is a, a greater number of patients are uh, have a little bit of healthy skepticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I'd like to distinguish skepticism from cynicism. Yeah. You, you know. Um, and, and that is, to, again, to, to recognize the nuance, that, that there can be a lot of good of medical care. Um, this isn't about avoiding your doctor when you're sick. This is, this is about questioning, um, you know, what are, what are it, you know, there's no other word to call them but interventions uh, when you're well. And, and one of the things I hear sometimes is, well, it's not like a drug, right? When we're talking about tests, it's not like a drug. It's, you know, there's, you know, information never hurts you. Uh, well, I hear that too. But yeah. that, that's not really true. That's not right. Yeah, that's yeah. really not right. And first, first, information suggests there's more certainty than it is. So, mm-hmm. so we probably mm-hmm. should have a, a better, word for that. A better yeah. language, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, I like to think of some hierarchy, uh, you know, from data, useful information to useful knowledge. And and I'd say this a lot is innuendo. of innuendo. It's innuendo. And it's a lot of the tests is just data, yeah. and it doesn't really provide useful knowledge, but it may provide anxiety mm-hmm. it may provide for a trigger of a cascade of more intervention mm-hmm. which may have real consequences and it will certainly help make people poorer mm-hmm. and that's not good for their health no and, and that's something we usually don't tell people when they come in for a screening test which is often fully covered right that the downstream the, the, testing the downstream uh, testing may make may you ha- poor may, may make you poor now let me ask you this question yeah. i don't see you spending your career criticizing alternative and complementary medicine. No. And why? Why do you spend your efforts on things within the canon of Western medicine, but not complementary and alternative medicine? Because it's my tribe. Yeah. I'm, I'm very tribal. It's, it's, because it's it's what you do. These are my people, you know, and and most docs, you know, I I think, Honestly, most physicians want to do the right thing. And you believe this is a group of people that's responsive to is, data. Is responsive to data. Yeah. yeah. And the, not all of them, but, but, but most of them are. Yeah. And, and, and I think increasingly, in part, it's, it's the structure of the system 
uh, changes and fewer and fewer doctors are directly fee-for-service. They're more likely to be salaried employees. Um, more and more docs are actually quite open to this medicine, uh, this message. And, 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 and most primary practitioners recognize that patients getting too much medical care is, is actually a problem. It's not some imaginary uh, thing. We, 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 you know, the historical concern was people getting too little medical right. care, and that still happens, yeah, to be clear. That, lack definitely. of insurance, for the most part. But, but, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that, 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 that some are getting too much, and, and that both concerns are relevant. The total harms and total costs of uh, inappropriately deployed Western traditional medicine versus complementary alternative medicine, it may even be greater. In, in, in Western medicine? Yes. Oh, yeah, I think yeah, it is. I think yeah, it is. We, <laughs> we, we can crank the bill higher. Yeah. We can crank I mean, the I bill higher, know. yeah. I don't know, but I, I, I would just shoot for the hip and say, yeah, it probably yeah, is. that's what I suspect, but, but, yeah. But, but, but the main reason I don't focus on complementary medicine or something is because there's enough, you know, I just got to be, you know, there's only so many things one can do, and I, I wanted to focus on where I thought I might actually have influence. I agree with you. I mean, that's the same thing that guides me. I also don't think it's uh, it takes anyone too clever to say that has no data. I mean, because it has no data. So I don't think it uh, requires much intellectual horsepower. But anyway, I, I only ask this because I got in a fight about it online because uh, a place, place called Twitter you don't want to bother with. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm all, that's why I'm not on it. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask you this. Sure. Three decades of mammographic screening. Archie yeah. Blyer, Gil yeah, Welsh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Classic yeah. paper. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what that paper found? Uh, well, sure. I mean, it was, um, and, and I really want to give Archie uh, credit because he, he he emailed me as I told you last night about ten or twenty graphs and and, and thought he he had some ideas for a paper and what um, one of them just really you know jumped out at me and I never kind of thought of it this way before but you know it, it was just showing all the increase in the incidence of breast cancer was early stage disease and. Um, of course, that's what you expect is, you know, you look harder, you, you find more early stage disease. And, and then I thought about a paper I'd written with, with Bill is, is, of course, that's not what's really important. The, 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 the real um, prerequisite to screening having a good effect mm -hmm. is you got to have less women present with advanced disease. Right. So whatever excess in early disease you find should be offset by reduction in advanced disease. Absolutely. you yeah. got to have, I mean, you, you yeah. can't be helping people through screening unless you reduce the amount of advanced stage disease at the time of diagnosis. If you build a fence, more <laughs> rabbits have to be in the fence and less rabbits outside the fence, right? Yeah, that's uh, I, I don't know. I'll have to think about yeah. whether you said that, right? But, 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 but to me, that was so basic and 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 there was absolutely you know essentially no change in in the late stage disease and and that just that that was just another way not only to look at overdiagnosis but it was also evidence that that this thing isn't doing very much right and and i guess so so it's yeah. it, 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 this i realized one graphic actually conveyed two messages yeah that you got a fair amount of overdiagnosis and it's not helping people and this classic graphic is again two lines the incidence over time which shows if i recall like a hundred and 150 per hundred thousand incidents going up to 250 per hundred thousand yes. so nearly a doubling hundred thousand yes. yes. hundred per hundred thousand right. more and then the rate of metastatic disease was something like 22 25 just flatline right and and, and let me just uh, yeah. say so so uh the, the main graphic was early stage disease, which would be um, 
the the historic seer stages of local disease and DCIS. Uh-huh. And the advanced stage disease was distant metastatic. Four and three. Or um, yeah, before then it was called regional. Regional, regional right. disease. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we largely axillary node Nodal positive disease. Yeah. Uh, and and that line was flat. And and that and, and as you said, metastatic disease. That subportion of metastatic is also flat. And and um, I thought that was a, a really important uh, point to uh, to make. Uh, as I say, because it really has two messages. One, the test doesn't work very well. Can't work very well. And and two, um, you're involving a lot of people in a process who otherwise would never know they had breast cancer. You show this another way a few years later when you look at the incident tumor size over time. Yeah. So this was the subsequent yeah. paper, the yeah. recent paper. Yeah. And, and, and what you show there is, although we've seen tremendous increases in the number of women with like less than one centimeter right. tumors or less than two centimeter tumors, right. the number of women who present with four to five Large centimeter tumors, tumors yeah. is just a strict flat line. That's right. And this got this has to suggest reservoir yeah. because if you early yeah. tumors you're finding and intervening upon we're going to get bigger yeah. there should be less bigger right. tumors and and, and, and it, it, some people would say this is like a, a duplicate publication because it's basically showing the same thing with a different variable mm-hmm. instead of looking at stage you're looking at size mm-hmm. um, and you're finding basically the same thing you're not seeing. You're seeing a little bit of reduction. Hmm. Um, I, I, I want to be clear that there is a little bit of reduction of the large tumors, but there's this overwhelming increase uh, in small tumors. You're not having a big effect on the large tumors. And, and that just says this is a very heterogeneous disease. Uh, some people are destined just to develop bad disease. Mm-hmm. Now. I think it's really important to be clear when we're talking about breast cancer, there is really good news in breast cancer. Mm-hmm. The so therapies are the, getting better. They're getting a whole lot yeah. better. The mm-hmm. understanding that this is a hormonally responsive disease in the vast majority of women was a huge step. And, 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 and that, probably more than anything, is responsible for the now 35, 40% decline in breast cancer mortality mm-hmm. starting mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, for the more specific, the Herceptins, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, for the more um, rarer forms of breast cancer, have also uh, been uh, a very important improvement. So I think it's always important to make clear that the uh, message in breast cancer has some very good news. The good news is about falling mortality. The good news is largely about better treatment. And ironically, the better we get at treating a disease, the less important it becomes to find it early. And mm. that's a little counterintuitive mm-hmm. for people. The great but, example is testicle cancer. Yeah, right. we, we, stage four, if you present with de novo metastatic disease, cure rates are now 97%. Yeah, yeah. And so if the cure rate is so good in the advanced stage right. and the cure rate is so good in the early stage, uh, the prerequisite to screening is null and void. That's and thus right. USPSTF recommends grade D testicle self-exam, right. harms exceed benefits. Yeah. And, 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 and I, my, my example is pneumonia. Why don't yeah. we scream for pneumonia? Because right. we can treat it. Right. You know. Uh, you think, you, you, for years. I, I want to do no. one more yeah, thing yeah, yeah. on breast cancer okay. before we Good. go. Because you did two papers. But you probably missed another one that I think is actually, um, you know, it's actually probably more important. This is actually was in JAMA Internal Medicine, or I think it was archives then. I can uh-huh. never remember yeah. what, what, what the name this was. This is the, Nor- the Norwegian experience? Yeah, yeah. Which, which again, I want to credit yeah. um, 
co-authors for bringing me the Norway data, but it, it was really interesting. Um, two cohorts separated in time. Yeah, two cohorts. Aren't you... you did you study for no, this? No, I've read all your papers. Uh, unbelievable. But I, read I all thought your papers. it was really. And yeah. I had to. Th- my major contribution was to think, what the hell are we going to call this design? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I came up with staggered cohort. Staggered design. cohort, yeah. yeah. But 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 really, they're only separated by about uh, uh, three, six, five years or something. Yeah, yeah, it's about four years. Yeah. And, and so. What we're doing is sort of the, the these are four counties in Norway, and and you're counting uh, cases from uh, three rounds of screening, and and, and the first cohort um, is the four years before screening, and then the prevalence screen, so mm-hmm. that they get sort of screened at the end of the period, and the other cohort is starting four years later with the prevalence screen and gets two more screens. And, and what's interesting is is to look at the cumulative incidence, mm-hmm. age adjusted, so you've got similar ages going through. And um, that graph has two lines, one mm-hmm. for each cohort. And what, 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 what you see is what you expect is, is the, uh, the group that gets screened only at the end is going up at a steady uh, increase of cumulative incidence as, as women uh, have more time to develop uh, breast cancer. And then it pops up at the prevalent screen because prevalent screen finds some uh, mm-hmm. brings some cases forward in time well the other group is going uh up at a a similar slope until the first screening test then it pops up and then it goes in sort of a similar slope another screening test pops up and then it goes for the third screening and pops up but the funny thing is they don't end up at the same place yeah and you'd think that at the same time that you got to a prevalence scream at the same age, you would have the same amount of breast cancer in both groups. In the same age group, people. In the same yeah, age group, for period. Age. Yeah, you're in the same age. But instead, you have this excess that's not found in the last mammogram in the control group. Yes. And that excess, I think, reflects finding cancers in these intermediate screens. That would regress. That that don't would but did regress because they weren't there at the final screen so yeah so i mean i think the beauty of this design is it's a natural experiment it was outside your control um but what it really compared was um at a certain age among women had you had more frequent mammograms you had more cancer than had you had your tests all at the end of that time interval that's right and that is a counterintuitive and a finding that the only real explanation is a deeply unsettling one at least unsettling if you believe that these things are saving lives. Yeah, what's well, unsettling if you, the, it, it, but 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 in some ways it's a very um, yeah. positive message right. it, that in fact our bodies uh, deal, particularly in high turnover tissues. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about thyroid, prostate, uh, breast. You know that, that there there are small cancers uh, probably happening all the time. Things that meet the pathologic definition right. of cancer, our bodies recognize and shut them down, and, and 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 we go on. This is not to deny some people don't develop really bad cancer. The point is, it's a whole lot more complex than we originally appreciated, mm-hmm. which we just thought that once one cell went hair, haywire, you were destined to die. You, you had to you had to intervene. Well, in fact, um, there's a lot more heterogeneity than that, and 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 some things that meet the pathologic definition of cancer simply don't matter, and some will go away. Maybe the way we conceptualize it is fundamentally wrong. Like there's cancer, not cancer. It's really a continuum. Absolutely. From normal, healthy dividing tissue right. that doesn't deprive the host of nutrients right. to lethally growing tissue that will kill the host, Absolutely. and things in between of 
ways, ways in which tissue proliferate that are not that deleterious yeah. to the host, yeah. that may actually go self-correct, yeah. may get worse. Yeah. And there's, it's really kind of a, a dimmer switch rather than a light switch. Uh, absolutely, and I would say this is a, v- a very general problem in medicine, yes. right? And, and may, maybe in the world in general. From we, high we, blood pressure to high we, cholesterol right. to cancer to... Exactly, they, most things exist on a spectrum. Yeah. Uh, that it isn't simply things work or they don't work, or, 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 or things are black or they're white. You know, there's all this gray in between. And in fact, there's a lot to be learned from that. And But it, but it does mean we can't always be operating with simple decision rules like if A, then B. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to think where you are on A. And, and it makes the world a more complex place for sure. I wondered if we could also talk about an earlier paper of yours, the, um, I believe, 2000, 2001 paper with Bill Black, where you looked at randomized control trials of cancer screening and you looked at the difference between the two arms in terms of cause-specific mortality or mortality attributed to the, that cancer, which requires provider adjudication, mm-hmm. and all-cause mortality or the raw number of deaths between the two arms, which is something that is, there's no disputing. That's, right. a, that's a hard it's, fact. It's just a body count. It's just a body count. Yeah. And in this provocative paper, I believe, I forget the title, but something like discrepancies or discordance or something about ways in which these numbers moved in sort of a a non-intuitive and kind of perhaps problematic way. I think the title, you'd think I'd know the title, I know. Well, but I don't. I think it's all-cause mortality yes. in, in randomized trials of screening. Yes. I think that's it. Yeah, JNCI paper. It, it is JNCI. So tell us about this paper. Um, yeah, so, um, so the title of the paper is all cause mortality mortality in randomized trials of screening. And and what we were doing is, as you said, cataloging both the disease-specific mortality difference and the all-cause mortality difference. And and we were sort of separating them into congruent and and non-congruent. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, um, And the point is a lot are not congruent. Uh, and, and, and I think, what this says is is it's it's really important to think about exactly how we attribute cause of death, particularly in randomized trials mm-hmm. of screening. And I, I want to be clear, it's not easy to do this yes. because even conceptually, um, in in the so-called rules for cause of death, there's ambiguity about how treatment-related deaths should be coded. Right now. And, and, and in fact, you might even argue under different situations, you would want to code death differently. If you're really interested in understanding the causes of metastatic disease, you might only want to attribute deaths that involve metastatic disease. Right. But if you're interested in whether what a sc- the effect of a screening program, you sure as hell want to include deaths due to treatment, even if that cancer was never destined right. to cause. You, you want to capture right. the full effects That's of screening. That's weighing on the other side of the scale, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you also, and this is even less likely to actually be caught, but you want to attribute deaths due to the testing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, deaths associated with biopsy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even if they don't have cancer mm-hmm. because that's part of the deal mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. you're doing more to mm-hmm. people that are being screened so you want to sort of capture all deaths that are, are uh, attributable to the screening process mm-hmm. not and, to the cancer right and all downstream yeah. events and all downstream if, if you, events if you die four years later on a uh, after a, a vats surgery um that should be counted against screening uh, that's right 
but it, right. but as you know, not all of these screening trials document these deaths very well, uh, including absolutely not. Yeah. And, and th- yeah. th- this is where we argue because of this, um, you know, th- this subtlety and how sensitive you know about what deaths you include. At least patients would like to know we're using the language "save your life." Right. If we were using the language "save your life," we gotta be say testing all cause mortality. That's what I say. Yeah. And. Well, that just got the, my tribe of epidemiologists saying, well, Gil, you're living in la-la land. Mm-hmm. You know, you're mm-hmm. living in la-la land. You know, you can't be demanding all-cause mortality. Because the power will be two million. Because uh, we, the effect size gotta, is low. Right, we <laughs> yeah, gotta, right. We've got to be, we've got to be enrolling two million people. Yeah. 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 And, and I said, well, then we ought to at least be honest. Yeah. We yeah. don't know yeah. what the actual effect is on your life. And, and, and to me. Uh, yeah. One of the most amazing papers was the 30-year follow-up of the Minnesota uh, colon cancer um, FOBT study. study. FOBT Superimposable study. all-cause mortality curve. Oh, Superimposable. Put them on your website. Yeah. Figure two. Yeah. Unbelievably, yeah. Yeah. there's absolutely no mention of it in the article yeah. except to say figure two shows all-cause mortality. But you look at figure two, and you know I blew it up on the screen. I took it to 100. Yeah, I was trying. Is there any difference? I can't see. There's no difference There's there. no difference. And people say, um, well, at the end of the day, everyone is dead. But this is no, not no, bad. No, no. That's the same this rate of timing. death. Exactly. This is timing. It's time to event. This is time There's to event. absolutely no difference absolutely at any no moment difference. in time. Yeah, so what, what, in time. what yeah. are we doing? Are we shifting cause of death from colon cancer to cardiovascular disease? Well, we ought to tell people that. Yeah. I mean, nobody would subscribe to any screening program if it were actually the case that all of the gains in cause-specific mortality were offset by off-target death. And yet we do not with certainty know that, I think, for any screening program. Right. We could talk about NLST. They did find an all-cause mortality yes. benefit, but their control arm is inappropriate because it's chest radiography. Yeah, it's not yeah, really know, what observation know, would be. They're getting know, needles. Know, they're getting thoracotomies. They're getting vats. It's not I a good know, control arm. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no. And, and then yeah. we'll also need to talk at someday about Nelson trial. This yeah. trial that people have cited the abstract, it's never been published over a year and a half since present. A What's year happened pre- there? I've read some stories that there are more protocol amendments than a, than a, than a target in a Texas sharpshooters. That, you know, oh that it's a, a series of amendments. It's a, I heard it's a disaster, but I don't know the answer because it's never been published, but we'll read right. it someday. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's but, but talk. I, yeah. I, I, it, just to sort of finish up yeah. On, on, yeah. On, on this all-cause uh, mortality, yeah, this it, discordance. It, it, I think the first yeah. thing we need to really acknowledge is, is screening is a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing. Because it, 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 I think the, the, the primary belief is there's no downside. You know, that there's no downside. Of course, we should do it. And the truth is, it's a mixed bag. And the second thing we acknowledge is we're never going to know it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I know that's uncomfortable for people like you and me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're never going to have the answer. Mm-hmm. So we've got to acknowledge, like, it, at the very least, it's a long run and a short slide. We can never pretend, in the case of cancer, of a chronic disease, where my risk of cancer doesn't affect your risk of cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't argue this is a public health imperative. It is not a public. At best, it's a choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we should just knock it down. This is not the most important thing a healthcare system does. And, and too often it becomes the way we judge the quality of our healthcare systems. That That's is laughable. Crazy, yeah. That is laughable. Mm-hmm. How good a healthcare is, system is, is how well.
well it takes care of sick patients. I'm sorry. That's the, I've that's had doctors tell yeah. me that they have salary at risk if women don't get mammography yeah, that, at certain rates. Absolutely. That's, I've and I, had women tell me that they've been told that they can't come to the practice anymore if they don't want. It's like your dentist saying you, he won't clean your teeth if you don't have... If you don't floss. It, well, no, no. <laughs> if, you if you don't have a dental x-ray. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you and they do that too. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, yeah. cr- it's criminal. But I guess if people really understood these issues, I mean, you make this point where um, you know you may have to live with uncertainty and imperfect yeah. information, which is fair. And you also it's more make than the, fair. It's more, true. It's true. <laughs> but I think if you really if you really look at the the putative all cause mortality effects of these interventions, if you look at yeah. the societal cost, the downstream cost, the number of people become patients, if you look at the uncertainty and the ways, the difficulty in resolving the uncertainty, yeah. one reasonable conclusion would be that we would not be funding Grail and these companies at $1 billion in venture capital right. seeking the next promise right. of blood-based cancer screening. Right. The when you say we would not be funding. I guess venture capitalists, not they, me. I, I wouldn't put my money well, there. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 but, but they, they know. I think I don't know I'm if not they know. Sure. I, I'm not I don't know sure. if they know. Well, no, I'm not sure those venture capitalists d- don't know that, that, that they might still make a lot of money on it, even if it doesn't work. I think they know that, yeah. Yeah. But that's the problem because it's up to us yeah. as professionals in the space to say we will not use your test right. until you clear this right. bar. Right. But but we in fact have not. In fact, there's an ongoing study that's an uncontrolled study and that's run through Geisinger and this uh, cancer seek uh, blood yeah, test. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, uh, we all want uncontrolled studies because that way no one loses. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Let's talk about the signatures of cancer. Yeah. This is the new paper. And I think it's a nice culmination of, you know, so much of your thinking on this topic. It really brings it together, um, you know, so nicely. Where you look at different tumor types that have had different histories. Some have had screening, but some haven't. Some have had therapeutic advances and some haven't. And you ask, can we think about cancer in terms of a set of diseases with different signatures? Yeah. And by signature, you mean the incidence over time and the mortality over time, and, and, and with the addition of metastatic incidence. That's yeah. The, yeah. And and this this was uh, in many ways, I'd, I'd say this paper is uh, everything I know about cancer in less than three thousand words, because it's really looking at a bunch of pictures or patterns uh, that. Um, I, I had the idea for this paper about three years ago, and I sort of built some in the spreadsheets and sat on the back burner for a while, and and, and I, I'd have always in my talks shown a lot of graphs you know graphs over time that that's been my my signature if you will for for 20 years and the one thing i i i did want to add though was that and we're basically showing incidence and mortality trends over time 1975 2015 and i realized that the difference between incidence and mortality in some cancers didn't allow you to really see the change in mortality. You know, if the incidence was much higher than mortality, didn't allow you to see changes in mortality well on the same graphic. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look at things two ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, each cancer gets two graphs. One graph is absolute rates over time. And the other is relative. And the yeah. other is a relative rate from 1975. From so they both start at one. Mm-hmm. And that really helps you see some of the changes in, that you might not otherwise see in mortality. 
And, and I start with, with the best news, you know, with, with, with a steady incidence line, flat, and, and a dramatically falling mortality line, just falling over time. And, and that's Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it's, uh, Better you know, it's really just a good story, right? Mm-hmm. You've got tr- stable true cancer occurrence, and we're getting better at treating it. And CML is in that category. I, I threw in yeah. CML yeah. because... It, and I, I have to thank here a, a yeah. surgical uh, resident who, who who was teaching in my class, and this is how teaching sometimes helps you, you know. And she's talking about Gleevec, and I, you know, I'm a general internist, and I'm thinking solid tumors. I I didn't know anything about amanabid, and I said, oh, I wonder what 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 that looks like in CML, this, you know, the effect of this new drug. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, I don't usually look at the hematologic malignancies but i i said i can do that i look at see her pull it up and it's unbelievable mm-hmm. that mortality is is pretty much stable in cml until about the year 2000 and then it drops more than by half mm-hmm. in the space of three years mm-hmm. and settles in at a new baseline mm-hmm. man that's a good drug right that's a good drug so i start with with those and and then then move to lung cancer because everyone knows that lung cancer is related to smoking and you just see how powerful the rise is and how powerful the fall is you see the lag time between uh, peak smoking and lung cancer and and lung cancer of about two to three decades and the difference between men and women because women smoking patterns yeah yeah they peaked about 20 years later than men in part because of the women's liberation movement which fostered the virginia slims advertising campaign directly to women so, and, and what's really interesting about lung cancer is incidence and mortality are perfectly overlapped. Mm-hmm. You know, their mm-hmm. changes just move together, you know, totally move together. And then we move to three cancers where you see that the disease is basically going away. Both incidence and mortality is falling, and that's colon, mm-hmm. cervix, and stomach. And mm-hmm. that has very variable screening practices. Mm-hmm. And, and um, one we've been screening for for as long as any cancer, mm-hmm. cervical cancer, and usually that uh, decline is attributed to screening. I think there may be other, other factors fact. yes, at work. I think it's harder to know. I think it's harder to know. Yeah, it's harder um, to know. But it looks just like stomach cancer, which we haven't been screening for. We haven't done anything different, but it's going away. Right. And then uh, the final one's colon cancer, which um, most people would attribute to screening, but uh, Doug Robertson and I showed that can't all be screening right. because, in fact, the mortality was falling even before we really started screening. Another nice New England Journal perspective. Yeah, yeah. so that's the third group, and the fourth group is uh, uh, the, the, the overdiagnosed group, yeah. and that's the, the classics of now thyroid, melanoma, and kidney cancer, where you see steep rises in incidence and no change in mortality. And then the more complex patterns of uh, breast and prostate cancer. So it's everything I know in 3,000 words or less. I think uh, it's a marvelous paper. Um, and, uh, and and my hope is to empower it, – It's I would call it a teaching paper. It is a teaching it's paper. It's meant to be – my hope is it's something that medical students read or people who are teaching medical students because I think everybody ought to be able to interpret the basic – you know, our our most central measures of epidemiology and cancer.
I want to shift gears a little and tell you uh, something. So this was around circa 2009, and I was working in a clinic in Chicago called the Erie Clinic. It was an underserved population. And there was a, a, a general internist there named Peter Mayock. Uh, I hope he's listening. Who knows? Uh, and he had uh, taken your course at Dartmouth. He was oh. like a practicing general internist, took your course in Dartmouth. And uh, it left a big mark on him. And, and obviously, you know, I was inclined in those years uh, to start thinking, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel a lot of similarities to you in the sense that, you know, I, I came out of medical school and I had some tools of evidence-based medicine and I was trying to make sense of things we were doing in our practice and started to ask more and more questions. I think you keep asking questions, you kind of, it leads you down the rabbit hole. And, and so I started asking a lot of questions and, and Peter Mayock, he handed me a book and it was called, Should I Be Tested for Cancer? Maybe Not and Here's Why. And he said, you're gonna like this book. Uh, this is by a Dr. Welch who I had the pleasure of going to his lectures and he's a superb lecturer. You would really like him, you two would really hit it off. And so I think this is like the first introduction I had to you. I think it was right around the time that Archives of Internal Medicine paper came out, that Norwegian data. And so I'd seen these two things. And so I read the book and, uh, you know, obviously I- You're, it, you're one of 200 people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you have a few more fans than that. I read the book and I thought, you know, marvelous. Uh, a couple years later with Steve Wolushin and the late Lisa Schwartz, who wrote Overdiagnosis. Yeah. I read that, marvelous. Um, uh, uh, less medicine, more health. I read it. I saw my name in it when yeah, you cited yeah, this yeah, op-ed yeah, we wrote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, shocked, taken aback. Uh, uh, I thought it was marvelous. Uh, so I guess what I want to say is, um, you know, I, I, I found your books to be so um, instrumental in my own thinking and as well as your papers over this year. You know, you ask if I prepared for this uh, this discussion. I didn't, in fact. I But I've read, I think, the majority of your papers wow. since the mid-1990s. Wow. because. When I was a student and I started to get interested and I saw somebody was an effective teacher, I, this is an advice I was given. If you find an effective teacher in the clinic, grab onto that person and learn what you can. Right. And when you find an effective teacher in the literature, download all their papers and read them all. Mm. Uh, because it really, it's really wow. a free education. Wow. So, so I did that. Thank you. Okay, and then along the way I started noticing you have written many op-eds and I started to read those too. And then I started to think that this has to be somebody who believes his mission in life is not just to speak to the tribe, but to speak outside the tribe yes. and try to educate the general public, writing books, writing op-eds, writing peer-reviewed publications, that there was a synergy here. These were as part of a, a dialogue uh, across each other. And I guess I wanted to ask you, is that really your philosophy? And if so, when did you start to think about this? And, and, and what motivates you to want to reach such a broad audience? What is driving this? Um, fame and fortune. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, let me say that, 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 that one thing I, I realized early on, that in some ways the best way to reach doctors is through the an op -ed. general meeting. Yeah, you know, I think so. You know, because yeah. they're, they're so uh, some of it w was was still about, you know, I wanted to make sure I could reach doctors. And I, I realized the literature wasn't going to reach all doctors, wasn't the only way to reach doctors. Um, and um, I think the other thing is, is when you write for the general public, you also make it easy for a doc to read. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. um, and he or she can track it really easily and they can read it in the quick quick time they have. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking. I, 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 I knew that there were other ways to communicate and I thought it was important. Uh, I, I realized that, you know, the literature isn't read 
by that many people. Um, and it's, and and one way to get people to really read your articles might be to have something um, in in the more uh, popular press about it. Um, and, and and I did believe it was important for at least the interested patients to understand some of the nuances of what was a counterintuitive um, idea, the, the, the idea that looking for diseases early wasn't always in your interest. And so um, one, once I was, you know, I, I guess I uh, was uh, promoted to full professor in 2000, and th- then I realized, I, you know, it, it wasn't just about publishing papers. I could take the time to do work that might uh, be of interest to a broader audience and, and, and actually maybe include more physicians in that audience at the same time. So it uh, And the same is true for the books then. The books also were yeah. trying to get physicians. It, yeah, I, I th- until the last one. The, the, the Less Medicine, More Health was... Um, you know, my publisher said, you know, your, your books always have a lot of charts and tables and figures and numbers. Um, could you do a book? And for, for some people, that, that this is just like, they, they look at that, they see that, and they say, this is not a book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, can you do a book that, that has more narrative, and, and I joke, less data? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll try that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so the, the last book was really specifically meant to be an easier read. Um, and, and, and not so uh, data intensive. But I've always accepted uh, talks to uh, patient groups when I'm asked, because, you know, if, if, if any group of patients w- wants to hear from me, you know, I, I'll, I'll say, well, they ought to. I mean, that's p- I think that's part of a job of an academic. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not supposed to just be in our offices. You know, we should be out there. We should be talking to people and... and, and uh, telling people what you think and and by the way i as i think that whole process just like classroom teaching you know it, it just it improves your own thinking about things gives you new ways to express ideas so in some ways i could say this is all continuing education you know and it all all sort of works together you know writing the, my first book which was a horrendous uh, effort you know and never done anything like that before but you know, it improved my teaching. You know, it, it began to give me, and I worked hard on visual, you know, illustrations, and 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 and, and I think I, I think all this uh, effort in sort of different venues can be very complementary. You know, in the sense that you get better expressing ideas, and 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 something you do for the book it works well for the class, and then maybe it gives you an idea for a paper. You know, that so so there's a. Um, you know, there the, the, are externalities along the way that mm-hmm. I think are, are beneficial for an academic. Do you consider yourself as part of the school of or in the tradition of the evidence-based medicine movement that really took oh, off in the I late don't 19- know. Yeah? No, not really. That's, I mean, I, I, um, I, I, I guess I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's you not don't like, identify that way. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, not really. You identify should, should no, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. obviously, you should. I mean, you should and you shouldn't. I guess I I'd say, uh, you are in the sense, of course, because you believe in the evidence, evidence yeah, and data. Sure. Yeah. Um, but you're, but you are different in the sense that I mean, I mean, I do see overlap with a lot of those people. But right. They often, um, 
you know, can easily become focused on methods. And that's not right. been your passion. No, no. You, you I, start been, as an internist. I, I've been uh, really focused on simplicity. Mm-hmm. If, there's a, if there's a guiding principle for me, it's keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and so maybe I'm a Bill Clinton guy or something. Didn't he say that? It's the economy, stupid. Or maybe that was his his campaign advice yeah keep it simple stupid. Yeah, yeah keep it simple stupid yeah but i guess i'd say that maybe this is a this is one thing that you and i agree on a great deal which is that um you you can read so many papers where they become more and more fanciful using right. complex modeling techniques right. and tricky methodology large data sets big right. data machine learning ai right. all these right. buzzwords right uh, but at the end of the day some of the most impactful scientific papers look at something quite simple right. and are almost just on the cusp of descriptive right uh to like where the conclusions are inexorable when you look at it right. you see it right and and you are a believer that that's the case for a- good work absolutely i i think a a good paper should largely be carried in a single figure Mm. you know i mean that's the um i i I think it's much more likely to be believed um if and if you're just showing the data i I do a lot of reviewing and and um you know some things are simply not reviewable there's too much of a black box you can't even you know imagine where the numbers they're talking about actually came from um and I, i never wanted to write a paper like that i always wanted to make sure everyone knew exactly what i was doing um and then they could make their judgments about whether that was the right thing to do or not over the years you've run into your share of critics You've been on panels with people who disagree with you, perhaps Mm. even vehemently. There are some noted critics who are known for their aggressiveness on this topic, their ability to participate perhaps even in dirty tactics. Mm. You must have encountered your share of them. That's something that not a lot of academics experience. Many people go into academia they have tenure, which presumably protects them from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the ability to be free. Right. But they don't really push on issues in a way that generates opposition. Right. I think many people running in the la- working in the lab, there may be somebody who doesn't like what they're doing, but right. they don't view them with sort of a virulence, with a sort of a passion. Uh, but when you when you go at cancer screening and you start offering the message, perhaps that. There are pluses and minuses here, mm. and we need to be honest about that. Um, that's going to rub people the wrong way. Um, and in fact, I've only gotten a tiny taste of it, but I'm sure you must have gotten a bigger taste of it. So I guess I want to know, like, what is it about your psychology that has allowed you to take that and, and, and persist? Um, well, well, first, I, I, I should say, I, I think I've been relatively blessed relative to some of the other critics in, in that I have uh, largely felt quite supported. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I should say, I, I get support from regular doctors and nothing means more to mm-hmm. me than that. I, I, I've definitely taken some, some hits, but um, I've always felt like there, there's been a reservoir of support. And my wife says I'm always a half full person. You know, it's all, always looking at the half full thing. And, but, but, but I really do feel that way that, 
that um, while I've definitely had conflict, it's always come in the face of, of, of a fair amount of support at the same time. Have people asked for your articles to be retracted? Uh, have people asked my articles retracted? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Have yeah, people, the mammography people. Yeah, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Have they people be, tried to um, have you, uh, have they litigated you? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that was a, a while ago. Yeah, there was a little bit of a excitement there. Uh, when was that? When This is a weird one, you know, because I give talks at different places. In some place I was filmed, and um, <laughs> you want to hear this story? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, um, and, and it was, it's like an hour talk on yeah. screening mammography. Yeah. And for 10 seconds I have a, or not even 10, probably three seconds, you know, I've, I've got a big breast cancer up on a slide, a mammogram of a big breast cancer. It's a, like a five centimeter tumor. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I compare it to a DCIS, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a microscopic yeah, right. abnormality and I have to actually blow, blow it up, up right. to, to show the audience. Right. So there's the, these two things. And um, the big breast cancer I got from Dartmouth Teaching Files in yeah. Radiology. Bill Black sent it to me. Well, it turned out it was from a book uh, that, that uh, was published by a Swedish uh, mammographer. And um, they, saw, they somehow were watching this video, found this five seconds or three seconds or whatever. And said it was and, copyright infringement? Yeah, copyright infringement, plagiarism. I think they tried a whole bunch of different angles, but I got a... Uh, I got a uh, message from the Dartmouth attorneys and uh, so forth, and they, they, they were they were trying to protect me, and I just asked the guy that had the video up to take that one image out, and mm-hmm. it was fine. But it was it was a just a big, it was just trying to punish me. Obviously, yeah. because using those sorts of figures is the stock and trade of academics. Many of, uh, I would say most <laughs> academics just Google an image, and then they, if it suits their purposes, yeah. they'll throw it in there. Yeah. So, but th- that's the kind of thing. And, and, and at promotion, I got a couple letters saying he shouldn't be promoted kind of thing to the dean. And I see. They, they were ignored. So I'd say, honestly, I, I feel quite, quite blessed. And, and, and I really do feel that, that any time I've, I've had a, a rough patch with, with critics, uh, it's been more than made up with support from, from others. And I think, you know, uh, one thing to... I, I think is true is if you're not making mm. some people angry, you're probably not doing much, mm. right? You're, yeah, you're really I not agree. saying things, you yeah. know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't live to make people angry. I don't, Correct. I don't particularly enjoy it. It's not like that's what I want to do. But, but if you're saying what you really believe and it's important and it's and it's something that that cuts against that, the that vested interests. Cuts interest. against the vested interests. Yeah. Y- you know, if, if people aren't angry pushing back they're not listening yeah so i have always taken it as as some um you you know some measure of uh, at least at least the message is getting out there along these lines i guess i would say that it's easy to believe that people who do good academic work and i think many people believe are that it goes hand in hand with just raw intelligence but i don't believe it's that case i believe it's it's a few things that go together you don't have to be the smartest person. Not saying Absolutely. you're not smart. No, I'm not. No, no, but, but, I, but, but I don't not. think I'm not a smart yeah, person. Yeah. No, you don't have to be the smartest person. Yeah. Um, but you got to be a little smart. Yeah. You don't have to be the greatest communicator, right. but you got to be a little bit of a good communicator. Right. And you don't have to be 
the most daring provocateur, right. but you have to be willing to have some people not like you. That's right. And you need a little bit of all these traits. Right. And, and that's where you see good work come. Right. And that's where you see work that inspires other people. And if there's one thing I want to say to your listeners, you know, we need the next generation. Yeah, I mean, you're, I know. you're, you're part of that. Um, and, and, and we need good doctors, people who care about patients and care about society as a whole, care about, uh, recognize the determinants of health are far beyond medical care, who recognize that medical care can do some real good in selected s- settings. Right. But we need them to say what they really think. Mm-hmm. And when they feel beaten down or they feel like they're getting um, measured for things they shouldn't be measured on, that, 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 that this is uh, actually uh, degrading care, they need to be willing to speak up. I think that we are the professionals in the room. We cannot allow bureaucrats to incentivize us financially by mammography screening rates. That is inappropriate. It's a violation of the oath we took, and we must shut it down. I agree with you. And and I think it's a. I think people will, in, in general, I think there's something freeing to say what you really think. Yeah. Let me ask you, and I know I don't want to dwell on it, but I just want to ask you about the circumstances that led to you leaving Dartmouth, which is, uh, uh, you know, I think an unfortunate uh, set of circumstances that have to do with um, this paper yeah. and whether or not sort of this central idea about tumor size over time was um, inspired by or perhaps right. borrowed by right. another right. younger investigator. Yeah. Um, and I guess my question for you is... Um, what made you choose not to capitulate in the end? Because I think sometimes we capitulate to fight the yeah. next battle. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was uh, I was uh, emotionally exhausted at this point, and um, I, I, I want to be clear. Uh, uh, I, I, I am totally blessed to have been at Dartmouth, mm-hmm. um, and I had twenty uh, great years there and there. Uh, or 24, I don't even know, but it, it, they were great years. Uh, and there are a lot of great people there, and I'm uh, exceptionally thankful to be there, to have been there. Um, I'm also exceptionally thankful and blessed not to be there now. I'm mm-hmm. very happy to be at the Center for Surgery and Public Health. And um, it's good to start a new chapter in life. I was always sort of wondering, is there a new chapter? And this felt like the natural time to say, okay, I'm not really wanted here. Um, you, you know, they're asking me to do uh, something uh, that uh, I think is totally wrong uh, to, to, to make someone a first author in a paper they had never read or much less could defend. Um, and then to be asked not to teach. And uh, they had continued to uh, uh, do this despite uh, the Office of Research Integrity uh, saying uh, this is not research misconduct. Uh, The New England Journal saying uh, this is not a paper we're retracting. We agree with the ORI. And then a lot of support by a lot of other people. And I really, really appreciate this, that that support. So I think it was a natural uh, time for me to say, okay, that's unacceptable to me. I, I can't feel good about doing that, um, and uh, this is a good time for me to move on and, and open a new chapter. And and that's it, and it's. I think uh, I don't regret it at all. Why didn't you include this this guy in that the original paper? Why didn't you just make him an author in the middle in the, be a middle author on the when you first submitted that paper? 
Well, he was uh, he hadn't done anything on it. He he had been, hadn't participated in it at all. Um, I uh, it, it never even occurred to me to to make him at all. He he had done nothing with it. Hmm. When you think about the future of medicine and, you know, there's been a lot of changes in your career, a lot of tremendous advances and a lot of things that have been costly uh, that take up our time that offer perhaps at best marginal benefits and a whole stream of unproven practices that are coming out, um, you know, to the forefront. Do you feel like sometimes it's whack-a-mole that for every, <laughs> of for yes. every yes. unproven practice, <laughs> Uh, that you know yeah. you you can yeah. smack. Uh, there another one crops up. Three more crop up. Yeah, uh, and 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 my brother Pete, who's who's a health economist in D.C., used to talk about pushing on a balloon. You know, the mm-hmm. minute you get get one thing under control, the balloon pops out over right. here. And I think that that that's the that's the very nature of 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 of, of the evaluative sciences we're always going to lag the testing of whether things really matter in the population is always going to lag there's always because it's such a I mean, one of the things we have to acknowledge is this is like the most vibrant part of our economy. It is the Wild West. There's all this. I, I, I hate to use the word innovation because that always yeah. tends to have the implication that something good's happening. But there's always this newness and new products and stuff. Um, and there's all, all this incentive to come up with new products, particularly products that have huge markets like screening tests. Um, so, so I think this is an ongoing tension. It's a tension that's going to be made worse, though, of course, it, it, when the system's so flush with cash. And I know it's, it's, it's amusing to say flush with cash when you say, well, all the states are running out of money and the feds are running out of money mm-hmm. and the insurance com- companies are complaining. But in fact, there's a lot of money in our health care system. And uh, where there's a lot of money to be made, there's always going to be people selling um, Snake oil. Yeah. I, I have a theory about healthcare, which is that, um, you know, when you're a doctor, there are many things that you wish you had. I wish I had, for some of my patients who are, are facing tough times, I wish I had the ability to give them some help to get them to the appointments, to help them with their yeah. calendars, yeah. to send. Sometimes I wish I had a caregiver I could send to their house right. to help them get, get in right. the, to take a bath right. and to ha- make some dinner right. and to clean his kitchen. Right. And there are a number of things I wish I could give Right. people that I care about um, that like, like another day in the hospital sometimes <laughs> yeah sometimes an extra day sometimes yeah. a nice set of sheets yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a robe that actually fits yeah. them yeah. that provides some dignity um, there are and, and some, a lot of social services I wish I could yeah. give these are these are interventions that disperse wealth right. they take wealth from the many and right. they give people jobs right. and they send them out in the community right. they disperse money right then there are interventions that consolidate money. Right, right. They're implantable drugs. Right. They're implantable devices. Right, they're right. drugs. They're yeah, interscreening well tests. Yeah. And we will always prioritize interventions that consolidate money in the hands of few yeah. over interventions that disperse money to the hands of many with the same levels of evidence. Yeah. I, I never quite thought of it that way, but um, I see exactly what you're saying. I think it's uh, true. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, now I'm interviewing you. Mm-hmm. Um, why... why um, why do you think it is we always prioritize those things that concentrate wealth 
over those that disperse it. We, we, then disperse it, just to be clear, you're talking about services, yes. social services yes. in the home that yes. might be really important for sick patients. For really, yes. Or, or, or for preventing patients with chronic illness from, from coming, coming back in. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm curious uh, why, why, why you would say that is. I, I, do, I agree with the observation. Yeah. I would say because in Western democracy, a small powerful, motivated minority mm. will always defeat a large and disinterested majority. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a lobby for people who are want to go in people's homes and provide them care and give them some dignity, but we will always have a lobby to write the bills that decide what is the device approval standards. And we're going to get more investment, more people. And then the rest of us, you know, the average person on the street, you, they don't know how their hip, knee and hip right. replacements are approved. Right. They don't understand what's right. the standard for a new right. cancer screening test. Right. And it's complicated. It takes decades to yeah. understand yeah. these issues. And so we will always be defeated by these special interest groups. Right. Because the, their interests are so strong, and those those of us that might oppose them, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many things we could oppose why and does we can't the rabbit, focus on. Why it. does yeah, the right. rabbit run faster yeah. than the fox? Right. Because the rabbit right. runs for his life and the fox runs for a meal. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, I'm not sure um, that you're uh, not right. I'm not sure that you're, you're right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering whether the other explanation is whether the general public is is always more supportive of, of, of something shiny. Yeah, and that's the other thing. This Shiny I mean, new th than they are about boring yeah. uh, social support services. Look at, I don't know. Uh, we, we carry these in our pockets. Oh, yeah. We yeah. have these on our walls. And, okay, and, we're on radio here, podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I'm well, what is these? These iPhones and, <laughs> okay, and flat screen you. TVs. Okay, just uh, but, wanted to make but, sure. But yeah. we extrapolate our experience yeah. with technology, which has yeah. clearly gotten better, right. to our experience with biomedicine, which right. is much, much more gray. Right. Right. And, and, we, and we do that at our peril. And, right. and, and I think that's part of the reason why it sounds sexy to have you know, some new drug. It doesn't sound sexy to have somebody come to your house and do right. your laundry when right. you're sick and dying. But one of those uh, things- Unless you are sick Unless you're dying. sick or dying, yeah. it sounds pretty damn good. It sounds pretty damn good. And it's, and it's something <laughs> right. that, you know, um, yeah. I'll just tell you one story. I mean, once, many years ago, there was a patient, I don't, I'll hide some of the details, but this is a person who came with like numbness and tingling in three fingers, right. came to an emergency room. And I'll tell you what, you have numbness and tingling in three fingers, you're gonna get a lot of tests. Right. This person had a CT, MR, MR right. brain, right. and you know, all these, a battery right. test that maybe, right. uh, the actual cost maybe $7,000, right. but the build cost maybe 20 grand, 30 right, grand, right, who knows. Right, right. And then at the end of this, this person said, uh, it was all negative, there's no sign of acute stroke. Right. Um, there's nothing to do, the numbness got better, you can go home. Uh, this person said, can I have money for bus fare? And uh, the system <laughs> said, no, we can't get you money for bus fare. The social worker's uh, not here. Uh, and I thought, uh, that's, the, that's the cruelty uh, of American medicine. And, and it's a day like today, yeah. and it's windy, cold, yeah. and he goes out there, and his tingling gets worse. Yeah, yeah right. of you course, know, tingling like, gets worse. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah, right. That's crazy. And, yeah. and that's the cruelty yeah, of American yeah. no, medicine. No, no, I agree. That I can yeah. get my patients a PET scan for right. a frivolous reason, but right. I can't get them uh, somebody to give them a ride to my uh, appointment. appointment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's crazy. Yeah. And I guess I think that that's the unspoken thing about cancer screening that um, we don't see, which mm. is the trade-off. Right. That we've invested so much in something right. that is a preference-sensitive decision right. that's not a public at health best. concern at right. best. Right. Um, that the actors are conflicted. Right. Um, and then the last thing I want you to kind of talk about is the rhetoric around screening. Yeah. You know, we live at a time where, thanks to your heroic efforts and the efforts of others, we were at a place where we can even have this conversation. Right. But 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, you had ads that said, if a woman hasn't had a mammogram, she needs more than a breast examined. Right. She's crazy. She's crazy. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, un, uninformative persuasion. I think right. that's what Barry Kramer calls right. it. Right. Um, that was the dominant mode of uh, of discussion of cancer screening. Right. Well, I used to joke that when I started my career, it would have been much easier to get a grant on promoting mammography mm. than it ever was to, you know, it was like free money if you wanted, you know, how, how you help increase mammography rates. So, you know, yeah. that's easy fund. That was easy funding. Right. Well, if you wanted to question as to whether it was really helping people, well, Good that luck. was, yeah, that was very hard. Um, no, it's, it, 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 and of course, it's a simpler message. You know, creating the, the need for it is a simpler message. First, you just need to make people worry about it, which, by the way, is it, is a downside right at the outset, right? You, 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 the only way you can interest a population in screening is, is to get healthy people worried about what might happen. Mm -hmm. And you might first ask yourself, well, is that good for their health? But anyway, so you got to get them worried about it. But then you suggest that the best way is to find it early. That agrees with everything that they've sort of heard before. And and then you throw in a couple survival statistics, and it's a it's a pretty brain dead recipe. It's it's an easy, it's an easy sell, and it's a misleading sell. Mm. I wonder if your research on mammography, um, not mammography, but cancer screening, about diagnostic, about these challenges of of, of casting a finer net, of. Uh, uh, does it change the way you practice? And I don't just mean like how you consent people to the screening, which I think of course it would affect that. Mm -hmm. But does it change the way you practice medicine, the inpatient situation, the, the the clinical visits where you're not talking about screening? Does it change the type of doctor who you are? Well, let me first be clear. I haven't seen patients in five years. Mm -hmm. I stopped seeing it when I uh, wrote Less Medicine, More Health. Um, but I, I think the answer to your question is actually didn't change the way I practiced. I think mm -hmm. I think the way I practiced probably influenced my research. I see. You, you it know, was the other it, way around. It was probably the other way around. Um, but but I was, uh, I, you know, as we were talking about um, this morning before we started the show, you know, I, as a resident, you know, you know, it was sort of the first time when I began to get the feeling that that the finding of a pulmonary nodule on a chest x-ray was a problem for a patient. And it wasn't a problem for the patient because of the nodule. It was a problem because of all the stuff that was going to happen. Right. And, I always, and, 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 and honestly, I wasn't in that special. A lot of us felt that way. It's like, oh, no, not a nodule, because that's not going to be good for this mm -hmm, guy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I think I felt, you know, that, that, that we could hurt people. I mean, I knew we could hurt people, and and I wanted to be really careful not to do that. And and the people we were most likely to hurt were the people who were who were good to start out with. Mm -hmm. And and I, so so that that always felt like a clinical principle to me from the get go. Is is make sure your actions aren't worse than the disease, right? Make sure the treatment isn't worse than the disease. Well, if you expand that. <laughs> Um, you know, obviously, uh, screening fits in that. You know, right. you say make sure the intervention isn't worse than the disease. Well, if you have no disease, you got to really be careful when you're starting to just um, disturb the soil, if you will, looking for things in people who are who are feeling fine. You you, you can. There's nowhere to go but down. As an oncologist, I, we often, you know, we have tumor boards with the fellows and people yeah. present cases to me and people often, you know, give me very detailed histories. I mean, they're taking me through scans and yeah. path reports and right, all these things. Right, 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 right. And sometimes I ask him, well, how does the patient feel? feel? Right. And they're 
Yeah. And I'm like, and then they're like, well, what, 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 what do you need to know that for? And I was like, well, that's an important, that's an important thing. When you're talking about giving someone cytotoxic chemo, and we have randomized trials testing, uh, does treating asymptomatic colon cancer, uh, small volume, is it beneficial versus treating later when it's bigger and present? And these studies generally do show that uh, these are interventions with a narrow therapeutic window with real harms. And it is not intuitive and not always clear that early treatment is better. And sometimes it's better to wait until someone feels bad because you can make someone feel a lot worse and right. give them a lot more chemo without giving right. them a lot of life. Right. And I think this is sort of the universal principle of medicine, which the principle of humility, which is the principle you've articulated, which is that it is easy and alluring to find things and and act upon them. And it is a lot harder to do the soul searching to know you're actually making someone better off and making the world a better place. Right. And, and the sooner you realize that in your medical career and the more you start to see clinical situations with that lens versus right. screening with that lens versus public health with right. that lens. Right. It's sort of a universal lens to look at different situations. And, and to respect respect symptoms. Yeah, and respect you know, symptoms. That, that's really what, I mean, uh, th- that's our origin, Yeah, you, you know? That you go to the doctor because how, how you felt the, it. How the patient feels, like is, is that's like the critical thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's not just about the numbers. It's not that, you know, the first thing is how do they feel? And, and that should direct you know how rapidly we respond. You know how 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 much we respond, and and and, and I think it's easy in this world where you know we're, we're you're always on the screen, and that the one thing the screen might not tell you is how they feel. I guess my last question for you is, what would you advise the young person today, who is a third year medical student, fourth year medical student? And, and I'll give him the first bit of advice, which is the first thing I'll tell him to do is, you know, you pick up a copy of Overdiagnosis and you read it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, you read that. And then I think, you know, I put your book alongside other books. I mean, obviously I've read all your books and I put all of your books alongside um, some other books I think are important. I think the books by Marshall Angel, yeah, very important. Yeah, I think yeah. Jerry Avorn's book, yeah. super important book. I think Peter Gocha, you know he's a he's a character. He's a character. He's a character. Yeah, but yeah. mammography, truth, lies, and screening—that's yeah, yeah. that's an important book to read. Yeah. And I think you want to read these books to kind mm-hmm. of um, get a sense of some of the challenges that have been right. faced by other people, some of the history of medicine that's not written in the history right. books. Um, but I guess after the student reads these books, yeah. and they come to you and they say, you know, I don't want my career. I mean, I want to see patients, but I don't want to just see patients. I want right. to make a difference in these issues. Right. What should I do, Dr. Welsh? What would you tell him? Oh, uh, first, that's a great question. Uh, I wish you'd prepped me for it last night so <laughs> I could give a really considered answer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the things about academics. We like to have a you know, weekend to think about mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. and then write it down. Mm-hmm. But you're not giving me that opportunity. Um, I, 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 I think, um, y- you know, the first thing to decide is whether you want to get involved in research and writing as part of your career. Um, and, 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 and it doesn't always have to be involved research, although I think it helps to really have a research background because then you can, um, you know, think critically about uh, the findings of research. Um, and, and, and so I, I think young people sh- who, who want to have a broader impact should make sure they have some pretty good familiarity with, for lack of a better term, clinical epidemiology, mm-hmm. you know, so, that, so they understand, you know, a, a, a little bit about the numbers, they're facile with numbers, they're looking at effect size, they know something about confounding and study designs, 
um, so they can come to their own uh, conclusions. And then the question is, what other activity do you want to do out there to 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 help communicate that to others? Mm-hmm. Because I think, uh, the, 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 if I remember the stem of the question right, you know, they want to have more some impact. More, yeah. impact. Yeah. more impact. And 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 do you want to have more impact um, through the literature, or do you want to have more impact? by maybe doing podcasts that patients will listen to mm-hmm. or, or, or some some effort to communicate within the, within the community and with, with which you are a part. Or, um, and um, I, I, think, I think there are a lot of ways to have an impact and some of it may be at the community level and some may uh, involve, uh, you, you know, being willing to... Um, go on a podcast or go on a, a, a radio show or uh, you, you know meet with people in a in a mall or, mm-hmm. or something you know there I think there are lots of ways for doctors to communicate with the public and and it's a good thing for them to do and then they, they can hear what what, what the public thinks I, I, I think of course they can be politically active uh, of course they can go to their um, state medicaid program or or or, Mm -hmm. uh the hospice program and 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 help with with in those programs and say what makes sense what doesn't i mean i think there are a lot of venues for physicians to be engaged with the public and provide a public service sometimes i wonder in addition to all the wonderful suggestions you've said if a few more of them should just run for public office because yeah. we need them. We yeah. need the voices yeah. of people who've studied science a- absolutely. and reason. Yeah. get involved in politics. And yeah. get involved in politics. Yeah. And I know that that means putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know. But, or, or, yeah. or, or, or helping, as I said, state Medicaid yeah. a- agencies or the or CMS, you know, consulting for them. You know, th- they need doctors who are willing to think uh, critically and beyond their own professional self-interest. I mean, all the payers need that. Well, Dr. Welch, I want to thank you for coming on this podcast. Well, uh, we've been, been talking quite enjoyable. a while now, yeah, but uh, time flies when you're having fun. I guess I, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, you've, you've been a mentor to me. You never oh. knew it all these years because no, I didn't. I've read all, you know, all your papers and it had a huge role in my thinking. Uh, it still does, obviously. I'm still, I'm still learning and still, uh, still thinking about these things. But I remember the feeling, you know, that I don't know if you've had this when you were, when you were coming up in medicine, but... Um, there's, there's, you only have this feeling early in your career when you've learned some of the basics and you have some deep sort of doubts in the bottom of your stomach, but you've never really heard them articulated. And then you might have a really charismatic professor on the wards, and then somebody might hand you a book by Dr. Gil Welsh. And, and, and those things are really those kind of moments in your life where you start to feel as if you're going to see the world differently. And, and once, you, once that switch flicks in your brain and you start to see things differently, um, you can never go back to the way it was. Um, you're always going to have this and go forward with it. And so I guess I, I do want to thank you for being a mentor to me. Um, I'm somebody who uh, uh, thinks very highly of you and thinks that what you did wasn't easy and what you're doing wasn't easy. But what you did, particularly in the 90s and the 2000s, um, it's not easy. It was an uphill thing to do, uh, to move along with others, as you as you very fairly note, but to move mm. a profession from dogged certainty to being able to have a discussion mm. uh, is a heroic accomplishment on something where the interests are so entrenched. And uh, I think we the world would be better off if we had a couple dozen more people like you. Well, well help grow them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm about to head out to Montana and, and go to pasture. 
So we need the next generation. So, and so I hope they're listening. Help, help grow the next one. I yeah. hope they're listening, yeah. Dr. Welsh. Well, thanks so much for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.